Which free agents should we be targeting, and which ones shouldn't we be? I'll ask Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Thursday, April the 19th. It's show number 13 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Thursday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com discussing how to separate the free agent wheat from the chaff in this early going, updates on the BaseballHQ.com website, some roiling bullpens, and his boons and banes for the rest of the season. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at a hot start by San Diego's Ty Ross, a slow start by Cincinnati's Luis Castillo, and a new start for former star Jose Bautista, and more. From the American League, Jock Thompson will be looking at injuries to Jonathan Scope, Josh Donaldson, Kevin Kiermeyer, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute. Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon reports on Rockies third base prospect Colton Welker. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at St. Louis outfielder Tyler O'Neill. And in our pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Chris Sale in Oakland to face Sean Manaya and other weekend matchups. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about buying high. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about, on the other hand, it's another big Thursday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The injuries just keep piling up, and so do the opportunities. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Thursday, full news and commentary edition... And in the first inning of this Thursday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com and a longtime analyst at the site. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Happy April, Patrick. We're nice to have games to talk about. Yeah, it is. Uh, this is your second time this year. I think you're our first two-time contestant, and uh, it's good to have you back. Uh, how are your teams doing so far? Mostly too early to say. I'm really looking for problems more than anything at this point and if i'm treading in the middle of the pack in most categories at this early stage i'm happy and i'm just trying to plug leaks where i find them so uh you know too far so far nothing too remarkable most teams up uh at least in the middle of the pack if not the top third and you know here in what week three or whatever i'm pretty comfortable with that how soon can you start looking for uh, problems and opportunities do you think that you really do need to address you know I had a team last year. It's kind of the first thing I worry about is some of the pitching counting stats. Like if you, I had a team last year that dug a hole in wins. I think I got one win for the entire month of April in a mixed league, just, you know, dumb bad luck. And even though everything went perfectly normally after that, you know, that, that, that win category just couldn't be recovered. So really, like I said, what I'm, what I most worry about is at this point is trying to identify those problem areas when they're potholes and not huge gate before they're huge gaping chasms, not to, not, not that you want to necessarily panic manage your way out of them, but just things to uh, pay attention to early on and hopefully keep the small problems, the size of small problems. It's awfully hard this year with the rainouts and the weather, too. Just getting 
playing time accumulated for, you know, starts or for even for hitters and let alone hitters hitting in good weather is, you know, it's been really challenging. So, you know, we're sort of in, uh, even though we're three weeks in, it kind of feels to me like we're still in the walk-before-we-run stage of the season, that things will start going faster and balls will start flying even more. But for now, it's almost like we're, uh, we got the restrictor plates on or something. When you look beyond your actual team and uh, your teams and their situations, uh, have you noticed any themes or trends for the game in general? It really seems like it's more of the same. You know, obviously the weather and the rain outside I already mentioned have been a popular topic of conversation, but it really seems like, you know, we're still in that three true outcomes mode where, you know, the power's up and the strikeout relievers are all here. It seems like every night I turn around and there's an extra inning game that's gone to the 15th or 17th inning because each team just rolls out four or five or six lights out relievers who throw 97 mile an hour exploding sliders. You know, the, the game being played seems like the game we've been used to for the last, you know, year or two or two and a half since the juice ball and the strikeouts, um, and the DL and all that stuff, the themes seem like they're still the same, but you overlay the early weather on them that's kind of tamping down run scoring overall. And it's, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens when things warm up, but it seems like we go through this grind in April every year waiting for uh, things to loosen up a little bit, and they do. But it's uh, it's been I, – I haven't seen anything that's shocked me so far, I guess, is the short answer to your question. I wonder what you think about the way that the game is shaping up. You've mentioned over the last couple of years we've seen this move towards three true outcomes. Uh, Joe Sheehan and others have mentioned how few singles are getting hit, walks are down, uh, stolen bases are down. It doesn't seem like we're having the same kind of baseball that you and I probably grew up with, which was a lot more station-to-station, a lot more, for want of a better word, tactics in in the game. Do you bunt? Do you not bunt? Nobody does any of that. It just seems to be uh, like the NBA became sort of a a drive-in dish three-point game and whoever sinks the most threes wins which a lot of purists say isn't as interesting as it used to be are we in danger of coming up with a form of baseball that's just not that interesting to watch other than generating stats for fantasy oh yeah i think we're definitely in danger of that you mentioned joe sheehan he i was just reading his newsletter this morning which obviously you talk about with him every time he's on the pod and he is uh, he does great work there, but he, he pointed out this morning that in the month of April, there have been more strikeouts than singles in Major League Baseball so far this year, and that's never happened before in a single month. Uh, I, I got to think that's alarming. Joe thinks that's alarming, and I totally agree with him. I was at Fenway one night last week um, watching the Sox and Yankees, and you know, it was you can blink, you know, go four, five, six batters without. You know, a ball getting put in play. It's like strike out, walk, walk. You know, maybe get some excitement with a wild pitch. But, like, you, you don't go to the ballpark and see, like, you know, guys going from first to third on a single or scoring from first on a double with two outs. You know, that kind of excitement, you know, with the ball in play and fielders moving around and runners taking extra bases. It seems like that is uh, that is kind of being washed out of the game. And I, I, I think that would be a loss. Yeah, and it, it seems like baseball's content with it, too, which is the weird thing. I mean, they in the offseason, what was the big story? Let's speed up the pace of the game without taking out the commercials between innings, I might add. So let's put in a let's put in a shot clock. Let's put in a limit on how many times there can be mound visits, all of which seem like good ideas to me. Uh, I'm not against speeding up the game, but it doesn't look like anybody at the higher levels of the game when they talk about it is at all concerned 
with the fact that fewer and fewer balls are actually being put in play, which means what we're watching is starting to look an awful lot like soccer, where you know a few guys just are meandering around out there while one or two guys are chasing the ball frantically, and uh, it's kind of dull. Yeah, it's a you know it is a problem, and it's hard to say. As you say, we have no indication that the powers that be at MLB are really concerned about you know what to us looks like the root part of that issue. I tend to agree with you that I actually find the mound visits thing to be fairly low impact right now. It seems like teams have adapted to it pretty quickly, and it makes a lot of sense. And you know that's that's sort of the low hanging fruit, but I don't think there's enough low hanging fruit to solve the problem. And you could talk about you know the you know the quote unquote juice ball or the home run spike and that in some sense is covering up what might otherwise be a you know well a, a scoring pattern reminiscent of the dead ball era if you took out the balls flying over the fences at the ridiculous rates you know people aren't scoring on singles and doubles like we said so if you got rid of the home run spike and just left us with the strikeout spike we'd be back to 1968 bob gibson and you get a second run and the game's over you know or like uh, major fastball, the uh, the fast pitch form of softball, where it's not uncommon to see a two hitter is, is considered an offensive outburst, and you know it, it's a walk and a steal and a bunt and a sacrifice fly, and that's how they score runs. It's you know, and even that I think would be more interesting than what we have because at least you'd see some movement on the bases other than a guy jogging around once in a while. Yeah, to me it's uh, it's something that needs to be looked at and I hope somebody does. Uh, you mentioned earlier that it's a little early to be talking about uh, making significant roster changes or addressing problems on your roster because chances are things will work out in the, in the long run. But in your regular GM's office column at BaseballHQ.com, you wrote about separating the wheat from the chaff in fab managing, and I presume that unlike the old joke about newspaper editors, your intent is to keep the wheat. To start with, you call April the most aggravating part of the season. Uh, so how do you assess fab guys at this aggravating part of the season? Yeah, that's why it's aggravating, because we don't have the information and the tools we'll have in June, July, or August to make roster decisions it's you know for for the hitters or the, the for the in-season data we have you know so few at bats or especially for the pitchers right now you know three maybe four starts if we're lucky to try to judge what a guy is doing this year and is it any different than what we've seen from him in the past you know keep in mind that anybody sort of by definition anybody who's a free agent right now is a guy that everybody in your league decided wasn't worth drafting or wasn't worth rostering in you know as recently as three four or five weeks ago so you know has something changed now and you know we don't have the sample sizes to say that if something's changed whether it's sustainable or not you know we have all of the data about when certain skills stabilize and we're getting to the point where contact rate changes start to be real and maybe we can start you know reading a little bit in between the lines but as we were saying then you throw in you know a guy you know take Carlos Quintana last week who got rocked in a start at Wrigley Field because his hand was basically too numb to grip the ball because it was like 25 degrees and snowing out you know how do we, you got a guy's got three or four starts to work with and one of them is a situation like that how do we figure out you know what the guy is doing differently if anything it's really hard so but on the flip side of it the reason it's aggravating is we have all these obstacles to getting good information or reliable information or information we can act on and yet every year 
there were always big profitable pickups in April. You know, if Aaron Judge was drafted at all last year, it was in the reserve round. But beyond that, he was a, frequently a very early pickup last year. There are guys like that out in the player pool this year, as there are every year. Maybe not the 50 home run guy, but certainly guys who can help us. And the challenge, we know they're out there, but identifying them is really hard. And that's why I called it aggravating. Yeah, when I was watching that uh, White Sox-Cubs game, uh, the Jose Quintana game, I kept waiting for Gail Sayers to come off the sideline and uh, take it on a, on a sweep to the right through the snow. Yeah, with the uh, you, you could make all the jokes about the sneaker game and all that, right? Right, yeah, and uh, Jerry Kramer and uh, Bart Starr's quarterback sneak and all that kind of stuff. Uh, starting pitchers already should have a fair number of batters faced, though, don't they? Isn't that enough to start making some more solid projections and interpretations of performance using batters faced rather than innings or starts? Sure, some of the batter's face data starts to stabilize easier uh, earlier, and you can make some determinations on that. You know, our metrics like... Uh, swing strike rate, rate and first pitch strike rate that you get on every batter rather than, you know, K per nine and all of that are, tend to be some better leading indicators. But then you, you know, you get into quality of opposition issues in addition to the weather. You know, it was, uh, I think it was Jake Farrier we were looking at this week. Uh, he had a start against Texas and, you know, he had had a rocky first, uh, you know, at least one or two of his first starts. He got blown up, but he had made, I think, three straight starts against the uh, Red Sox and Yankees and then was turning around to face Texas at home. It's like, well, that's a different level of competition. We should probably account for that. Yeah, I suppose that that does matter. And I also wonder about uh, getting down to the individual pitch level. Do we ever look at that and say, you know, we can't count innings right now because they're too few to make a good sample and certainly can't count uh, starts because there's so few of those. Could we go all the way down and say, you know, well, let, let's look at, at least while we're waiting, we could look at, you know, 100 pitches a game for a guy who's got four starts. He's thrown 400 pitches. Maybe that's uh, something we could look at and say, has there been a change in how many strikeouts he's, uh, how many strikes he's throwing versus balls? Is there a change in his mix that might be uh, indicative? Are individual pitches being more successful? That kind of thing. I guess my question is, where there are insufficient numbers to make the sample, can we look for different numbers where there's more of them? Yeah, sure, that does work. And in fact, uh, I think we'll talk a little bit later about our new uh, starting pitcher matchup score tool that we have uh, running on HQ this year that assesses, uh, you know, puts a numeric rating on each pitcher's individual start before he starts. It's sort of a projection of the uh, favorability of the matchup. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty complicated data model that Eric Foramonte built into that process. But one thing that he did that I really liked was he took He's looking at last thir- a couple of components. He's looking at projected data on the one hand. You know, he'll take our season uh, projection for the player and he'll marry that to uh, year-to-date data, specifically the last 30 days. And the way he does it within the last 30 days is he has breakpoints in there for whether a pitcher has faced fewer than 10 batters, 10 to 50 batters, or 50 to 100 batters in the last 30 days. And based on the answer to that question, he'll use a different mix of projected versus oh. recent performance stats for that. So that's yeah. kind of a, you know, one way to get at the point that you're suggesting is, you know, when we're trying to interpret data, you know, different metrics, different batters faced or pitch level metrics will stabilize more quickly than others. But the other aspect of it is, you know, we spent the entire winter coming up with projections for these players. And just because a couple of weeks of performance isn't 
exactly in line with that projection doesn't totally invalidate the projection. So the path to get to sort of the best expectation we can is probably a blend of the performance data, the especially the stuff that stabilizes more quickly with, hey, back in March, you know, you know, eons ago before this season started and everybody played 15 games or a starter pitched, you know, three times now, you know, what do we think about this guy a month ago? That should probably still matter. I've thought for years, Ray, that because of the increase in instant information that's available to more and more fantasy owners, there's way more pressure on owners to act quickly because you're you're so worried that uh, you're going to miss out. You got a, a a prospect comes up, you've got a four game breakout for a guy who hits you know three home runs in four games, and it it seems like we're almost forced to throw our chips into the pot because we're so worried that some potential huge winner in the fab pool is going to get missed because somebody else will act quickly. How should we be managing that aspect of things where there's so much pressure to do it now, do it now, do it now? Yeah, it, it's. It, I don't have a hard and fast rule, but it's it's a real concern. You know, to give you one concrete example uh, that I, I might have covered in that uh, wheat and chaff column that you were talking about. Well. One guy who I picked up in one of my leagues, or in a couple of leagues even, was uh, Nick Barkakis uh, in a couple of leagues where I needed some more regular outfield at bats. And there were some interesting hints in Barkakis's first and second week, you know, really small sample size stats. Like his, uh, it looked like he might have finally caught on to some of the launch angle res- revolution, and his fly ball rate was up, his line drive rate was up. He was hitting fewer ground balls, essentially. But, I mean, Barkakis is what, a you know, mid-30s, well-established hitter who hasn't hit 20 home runs in you know, a decade. So you know, there's, there's an extreme track record there that should carry a lot of weight compared to you know, 10, 15 games of stats. And I fell for it. And, you know, if the opportunity cost is low, that's fine. You know, he provide, he, he has his merits. He plays every day. He gets some counting stats, even if the, uh, the launch angle thing that I was squinting to see didn't hold through. But, you know, in one week, I dropped Lurie Garcia for him. And I'm, you know, I, I wanted the at-bats. And that was my primary motivation. But I'm kind of worried about that now because Garcia is still a part-timer. But he's got four or five stolen bases already. And if he starts getting more at bats in Chicago, it might very well be that by the end of April, I'll wish I had Garcia and not Marquecas. I was going to ask about that. Uh, it's easy to make the error on the guy you pick up, but it's also easy to make the error on the guy you drop because uh, sometimes because of the short sample, it can be tricky to figure out who it is that should be on your roster. Speaking of tricks, uh, what tricks or methods, and I use methods as the scientific term for tricks, uh, how can owners figure out the optimal bid in fab bidding? I know this has been a subject that has been covered on Baseball HQ. I actually had an exchange in the comments of one of our articles with a uh, reader last week who was suggesting that there's, uh, you, you know, there should be a model for an optimal fab bid, and there probably is. You can figure out your own budget and you know put your own projection for need on the player, etc. All of that works, but the problem is you're bidding against ten or twelve or fifteen other owners who aren't necessarily acting in a rational fashion. And it seems like you can come up with what your bid is and what your comfort level is. But in the end, it seems to me that that's almost like one of those bidding strategies that says at an auction, I want to bid 80% of the value on every player. That's great, but that means you're probably not going to get any players. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And I I remember years ago when I started getting interesting in the game theory aspects of uh, fantasy baseball, particularly in auctions, and I started reviewing the literature. A lot of economists look, look at auctions with a lot of interest, and 
You know, I read some Nobel Prize winning uh, authors talking about these auction considerations, and basically, they at the end, they all threw up their hands and said, you never know, because you put a price on a guy that's perfectly optimal, all it takes is one kook in the auction room to say, I don't care, I, I'll pay the extra 100 bucks, and, and you lose, unless you're willing to go beyond what you think the optimal bid is, and certainly we all know that's true in fantasy baseball. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, that gets into one of the other interesting things about fab is you can sit there and, you know, I actually, this doesn't usually happen, but one of my leagues this week, I actually got quote unquote caught price enforcing and then I threw a bid on Bud Norris just because, you know, I thought there would be a lot of activity on him because he seemed to be emerging as the Cardinals closer. And I didn't, even though I didn't have a particular need for saves in that league, I didn't want him to go for cheap either. So I threw a, you know, more than a nominal bid on him, something like you know 10% of my fab budget or something, and I got him. And I was like, oh, well, that's surprising. I didn't really expect to have him, but oh, well, now I hope he's the closer. <laughs> And you might be right. Uh, that, that's one of those things that also there's a certain amount of serendipity in all of this uh, calculation that goes on where, you know, you have every single reason to believe that Bud Norris is going to be the closer, so you put a big bid in on him, and two weeks later they decide they're going to go with Greg Holland after all, or you decide not to bid or you get him by accident as you did and he turns out to be great. Uh, that's why we play the game, I guess. Uh, uh, how does all of this change for you, if it changes at all, as we get uh, deeper into the season? Well, you know, in some sense it gets easier because we get more information and we get better sample sizes from the players who are in the free agent pool. And we also get a better sense of, you know, the opportunity that they might be coming into because maybe the player who they're, who we're projecting the steal playing time from is, you know, on the DL for a long time or just isn't performing or the manager is starting to show his hand as far as how he's evaluating a particular set of players. In general, though, my, my approach in FAB is, I, you know, as you say, there is so much serendipity involved in it and the payoff curve isn't linear. You know, you catch a couple of guys a year who you pick up whether you're spending a lot of FAB on them or not. And they provide real value to you, and that's the difference you need to augment the talent you bought at auction or rostered in your draft. So I, I tend to cast a broad net, and I'm not the guy who generally busts my fab budget or spends you know 25, 50, 75 percent of my fab on one player. I'm gonna you know kind of nip and peck at the pool every week, and you'll know, be churning the bottom of my roster all the time. And by the end of the season, I may very well lead the league in fab transactions, which means I'm generally fishing in the you know shallow end of the bid pool, but I don't think fishing in the shallow end of the bid pool makes me that much less likely to get the big payoff guys. So I'm trying to compensate for, you know, the luck factor by sort of, you know, in the uh you know, in the NBA draft uh parlance, you know, trying to have as many ping pong balls as possible. And of course that that all changes when you're talking about only leagues. I'm presuming that when you talk about, say, uh, last year Aaron Judge was a reserve round pick or not drafted, I can tell you in every American League only league that I'm familiar with, he got he got bought or he got drafted because there was a chance he could play, and that's what happens when you're talking about uh, in those only leagues. How does the whole fab situation change for you when you're playing in uh, the much deeper formats? Yeah, that is so much harder. Uh, just a different element that I, you know, I play in one or two leagues that are that deep, but I, I tend to be more of a mixed league guy. And yeah, it, you know, it's it, it's harder because when you see someone who has that clear, you know, playing time rules all, and if you see the guy who has that clear playing time opportunity for a number of weeks due to a significant injury or a guy underperforming, you almost do have to break the bank on them and you know buy 
a few guys who are going to get more at-bats. And if you find more at-bats or more decent innings via Fab, that's probably the best you can hope for. And that might mean chasing a, you know, a big call-up or... Uh, you know, someone who's not if you're if you're allowed to bid on minor leaguers to do that because the the free agent pool every week is just all backup catchers and no hit middle infielders and uh, uh, just rafts of left-handed relievers, right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. And in fact, over the years playing uh, primarily in in American League only, I found that the the best place to do your speculating in that regard is looking at guys who were third in line for saves because all the guys who were second in line were already picked up. Guys whose roles are changing, you know, that kind of stuff. More on the pitching side than the hitting side because unless somebody gets traded into the league and various leagues handle that in various different ways, but in the leagues I've always played in, a guy coming in from the National League is an open target. He's literally a free agent, and if you've got the uh, the hammer on Fab, then you get that guy. And uh, and so there's a, a whole school of thought that says you shouldn't be doinking around with the one dollar bids. You should try. You should be trying to have the hammer for the occasion when that guy does come across. With the caveat that usually they come across with only two months to go, so you've missed out on four months of opportunity. Exactly. Inevitably, it's that, or he comes over and it's not the skill set that you need, and you need power, and a, you know a speedster gets traded or a closer gets traded or whatever, and it's not, you know, doesn't actually help you in the standings, and now you have to go and try to balance that off with a trade or something like that. It's, uh, you know, as you, luck matters everywhere, but luck matters an awful lot in that circumstances too, circumstance too, because you're doing the opposite of getting as many ping pong balls as you can. You're holding it all for one and hoping that what you catch is what you need. And in trading leagues, uh, most of the leagues now adjust their trading deadlines to be after the major league trading deadline. So uh, even if you get a power guy that you don't need, you can always trade some power for what you do need, uh, theoretically anyway, so it doesn't always work out that way either. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com and a longtime analyst and writer at the site. And Ray, at BaseballHQ.com, there's a huge amount of emphasis in the run-up to drafts, a lot of analysis, the projections the custom draft guide was such an invaluable tool and all that analysis is aimed at making draft day decisions but all of our drafts are in the rear view mirror so what does hq do to help subscribers manage their teams now that the season is underway yeah there's definitely a pivot that uh you know take takes a couple of weeks in april for people's mindsets and even you know the analysis we do on the site you know gets a little stronger as we move along and try to find, uh, you know, try to get some of that data that we need to be able to make good, g- good, insightful decisions. You know, the uh, you know one of the things that's getting a lot of positive feedback early on is uh, we've sort of rebooted the market pulse column. You know, in season that goes position by position. Excuse me, in the preseason that goes position by position and looks at, you know, how our player projections match up against sort of the marketplace as a whole and the ADPs. In season, it turns into uh, you know, sort of a free agent tracker and, you know, it runs on Sundays and is supposed to help you make your fab decisions in weekly leagues and tries to probe at different league depths and project based on ownership data from some of the big sites who, which players might be available uh, and what, you know, what, and give them a rating as to how much they can help you. So that's one that uh, we've, we've, we've put uh, 
our staffer, uh, Brad Coleman, who's the uh, former front office executive with the uh, Cincinnati Reds, and uh, he's on he's on that beat for us this year, and he came up with a new format for that that uh, has been playing very well. So that's one thing that we're doing that uh, you know seems to be getting a lot of. Uh, giving people a lot of help on the weekends. And I think this coming weekend, we're all also debuting the, uh, the watch list column, which is where Alec Dopp, who uh, you know, handled this duty for us for a couple of years ago and is back with us now, is going to uh, be mining the upper minors for guys who are near a call-up, not necessarily your Nick Senzel, Vlad Guerrero, top prospect types, but the, uh, you know, some guys more into Bull Durham mode who are you know, maybe in line for an, you know, doing well in the minors and maybe in line for a call-up to a spot in the majors where there's a need. So Alex charges to sort of map those Bull Durham minor leaguers and also look at the major league opportunities and project where a change might get made. So that's uh, that'll be popping up this weekend, I believe. And that's another one that, uh, you know, we're trying to, you know, enable good decision making in season, you know, especially at this early time of year, whereas we were talking about earlier, it's uh, so difficult and you feel like you might be groping in the dark here and there. We have another new writer at the site whose name will be familiar to fantasy owners from MLB.com and from making 650 trades a year in his various experts leagues. Yes, uh, it was our big signing of the uh, very late in the offseason. Uh, you know, the Twins got Lance Lynn and uh, the Orioles got Alex Cobb and we got Fred Zinke. And we're, uh, we're super excited about uh, adding Fred. Uh, he you know, became available and we uh, talked to him a little bit down at Tout Wars and we're able to work something out where he's writing for us a couple times a week on the site. Uh, he's a guy whose work at MLB.com I have long admired, uh, both from the quality of his work and also thought that his uh, sort of his ethos and the way he plays the game and the way he looks at, you know, trades and player valuation, that sort of thing, would, would always, I've always thought they would melt, melt nicely with our approach at HQ. And uh, so far, uh, just a couple of weeks into the relationship, that seems to be playing out in spades. He's had some great columns for us, uh, and I'm really happy to have him uh, sharing his insights. And uh, when exactly is Fred going to be writing? So Fred's uh, weekly column, uh, From A to Zinke, I believe is running every Friday, and he's also handling the uh, one of the di- weekly matchups columns, uh, previewing one of the day's games. I think that one falls in the middle of the week, and then uh, early in the week he's also on the beat for the NL East in the playing time tomorrow's fe- feature. So uh, in playing time tomorrow, we look sort of ahead at the you know sort of what if scenarios of how playing time might be shifting. Uh, so he's got the five NL NL East teams on his beat there, and I believe that one runs every Monday. Of course, we have a lot of standing columns uh, from the preseason that don't have to shift too much to continue providing value. Uh, we have the buyer's guides, uh, starting pitching hitters and relief pitching, uh, Stephen Nickrand and Doug Dennis, playing time articles, playing time today, you mentioned playing time tomorrow, and uh, performance validation, facts and flukes and those kind of things. They all still apply in season pretty well compared to preseason. Yeah, they sure do, but they all sort of sort of sort of come at you know different lenses or different you know standards, if you will. Uh, you know, like I said, the playing time tomorrow guys get to play the what if game a little bit with you know projecting playing time and how roles might shift, and then the buyers guides. You know, Nick Rand and Doug get to you know they're already into some level of you know performance validation. Steven's been writing pieces on you know slow and hot starters to believe in and not believe in, and meanwhile the fat and fluke guys you know sort of take the longest lens view and. And they don't even start looking at 
in-season data to uh, to evaluate player performance until you know probably about next week. You know, the last week of April, first week of May, uh, because we want to let those sample sizes grow and take sort of the longer longer view, be a little less reactive in that space. So we're trying to you know we're trying to come at it with a bunch of different angles and have people sort of put on a you know slightly different hats or perspectives and you know hopefully uh, you know put put. We're putting we do put a little bit on the reader to sort of read all of that, digest the different lenses, and figure out what makes the most sense for the circumstances in their own league and with their own team. I've always thought that was a strength of the site, and I know in the past we've had discussions with some of our readers who say, you know, just tell me what to do, and our approach is. No, you know, uh, what we're going to do is give you the give you the tools to fish and show you how so you can feed yourself for a lifetime instead of just giving you a fish to eat. And I think that's probably uh, in the long run is going to be better for a for a truly engaged owner to do it that way. I mean, I can see the use of somebody who's playing in 20 leagues and not paying too much attention to any of them that just wants a do this, do that type of approach. But that's never been the HQA going back to when Ron Chandler started the site. Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, one of the other roles I play for the site is I handle our customer service inbox. And, you know, I get a fairly regular stream of emails uh, submitted in there from uh, subscribers or even, you know, prospective subscribers who, you know, have questions or, you know, are, you know, having that kind of feedback that you were just talking about. And it, it kind of peaks, as you might imagine, that, you know, as we get deeper and deeper into March, uh, you know the the teach me to fish people become more the oh just give me the darn fish already people I have a draft in six hours and I just signed up I don't have time to learn your vernacular and all your glossary terms and all of that just give me my draft list and I can certainly understand that and we try to support that as best we can with you know the the tools on the site and the custom draft guide and just let people print the list and go but I actually just got an email from somebody this week who was in that boat you know maybe a month or so ago. And they, you know, they were talking about extending their subscription subscription for the rest of the season. And said, you know, I was looking back at our exchange from a month ago, and he was he, one of those. Yeah, I just want the list, thanks. And now a month later, he's coming back. He's like, yeah, you guys have a lot of good stuff. Stuff. I think I might want to hang around for the rest of the season. So, you know, if we, I do feel good about the approach, as you say, it's worked for us for a long time. And I feel like if people, you know, the hardest part is sometimes getting people to, you know, take the look and you know be willing to try to ascend up the learning curve because you know we can tell them all that the payoff is worth it but sometimes people have to go through that process for themselves you know yeah i agree a hundred percent and i can't let you go on this topic without mentioning matt cedarholm's column the big hurt which takes a look at all the injuries that are taking place how serious they are when the guy might come back and uh if you kind of tie that column in with the playing time today which tells you when a guy's hurt what the ramifications are for other players on the roster that's a really powerful one-two punch i think for making roster decisions even at this time of the year gosh what have we seen 25 pretty important injuries already and uh, those are opportunities I, i hate to say it but injuries are opportunities in fantasy baseball yeah it really is the uh a, uh, a mindset you have to get into that, you know, I saw all the people, for instance, last night, you know, complaining on Twitter about Freddie Freeman's injury. And if that proves to be serious, of course, that does stink, but uh, stink for his owners. But you sort of have to just, it doesn't always work out this way, but you sort of have to take the mindset that everyone else is going to go through something like that in the course of the season. And it's how you react to them and how you manage those injuries and how you, you know, you adjust your roster accordingly. That is what separates the winners from the also-rans. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Matt's column because uh, he's 
it's free this week, so everyone can go and take a look at it. He's, uh, you know, he does a great job. He updates it a couple times a week with the latest infor- injury information. He's got a write up on Josh Harrison there from, I believe, yesterday. Uh, Kevin Kiermeyer, you know, all all, of the, all of these important injuries, and it, it, it's a great service, as you say, not just for the subscribers, but also helps the staff stay focused, too, because the playing time tomorrow, guys, the playing time today, guys, don't necessarily have to get, you know, versed in the intricacies of why Kevin Kiermeyer's thumb injury is worse than Mike Trout's last year. They can just sort of defer to Matt on that stuff and worry about what the dynamics for the rest of the Rays are, et cetera, without, you know, we don't all have to play doctor, basically. We let Matt do it for us. Yeah, I don't want to play doctor with the staff of Baseball HQ. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Ray, this has been great so far. Uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, we can come back a little later in the show. Absolutely. Ray Murphy is co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com and writes regularly for the site. He'll be back a little later on in the show. Coming up next, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. 1-1, pitch. He popped him up. He's going to get it. Rochus down from third. Rochus makes the catch. Ball game over. A perfect game. A perfect game for David Cohn. The third time works like a charm. It is the third perfect game in Yankee Stadium history. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. We have Jock Thompson on deck with the American League and leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Boy, it doesn't it seem lately like these news reports we're doing, Nick, are, it's like doing the rounds at a hospital or something like that. And uh, this week we start with still more injury news, uh, really bad news in Arizona. Taiwan Walker, the latest pitcher to have a... Uh, ulnar collateral ligament problems. He's looking at Tommy John surgery. Uh, if we know what we know about Tommy John, probably means all the rest of this season. Well, for sure the rest of this season, but also a good chunk of next year as well. So bad news for keeper owners. What's Arizona going to do to fill Taiwan Walker's innings? They were counting on him. They really were counting on him. And so it's, you know, it's hard to tell exactly what they'll do. The first, uh, the first arm up is likely to be Matt Koch. Uh, Matt Koch has uh, had a couple of relief appearances for Arizona that went pretty well. Uh, one good start so far this season in AAA. But Matt Koch is kind of not a guy I think you want to go he- heading to the waiver wire to pick up. Uh, our uh, our minor league guys ready him as a 6D uh, with the potential of a, of a number five starting pitcher swingman kind of thing. He does he can do well in stretches. Uh, but last year, AAA, uh, 10 starts at AAA Reno last year, 8.40 ERA. Uh, 5.0 Dom, 1.7 Command. Uh, so certainly not the kind of guy who's likely to make a big splash in the major leagues, although uh, had a good start. His first start in AAA this year was it was an excellent one uh, and could could make a, a good week or two out of it, but uh, probably not the kind of guy you want to put in your roster long Boy, term. anytime I see a dominance rate uh, of starting with the number five strikeouts per nine, I'm very very concerned, especially at AAA, because naturally you expect uh, those kind of numbers will drop off as guys move up the ladder, and the jump from AAA to the majors is the biggest jump of all. I mean, this it, it sounds like this uh, young fellow may have a, a lot of trouble striking anybody out in the majors. 
Yeah, you would have to. You would have to think that, wouldn't you? I mean, it's simply not. Uh, what is dominate at that level at AAA Reno is not the kind of thing that you're going to be looking for in the major leagues, and certainly not going to give you many strikeouts and. Uh, who knows how many runs he'll give up in the process. Now, this next story might be in the category of small news, and we usually try to look for big news, but uh, it's a big name. Atlanta has signed former Toronto slugger Jose Bautista to a relatively low price contract. And I noticed, Nick, at the same time, Freddie Freeman was pulled from a game on Wednesday night. He got hit by a pitch on the same wrist that caused him to miss uh, a lot of time last year. How are these two items connected? Uh, totally unrelated, unless someone went to a... Uh went to a seer late late yesterday and found out that this was going to happen uh, because Bautista was signed before the ball game last night, before anything happened to Freddie Freeman. Um, the Bautista signing is one of those things that uh, uh, that's a completely low-risk move for Atlanta. Uh, I believe that uh, if he makes the majors, he signed a minor league contract, and if he should make the majors, they would only owe him a million bucks. Uh, so it's the kind of thing that if he actually could get hot and reclaim some of his old magic, uh, he could be worth trade something at the trade deadline. Uh, with this latest news on Freddie Freeman that we're kind of waiting on to find out how serious that uh, that pluck on the wrist was uh, last night, uh, there's a chance he could get some playing time. But certainly, uh, Bautista was so bad last season that you don't want to expect anything like the former glory days to return. He's 37 years old, uh, and I don't think the uh, the contact rate dropped from 80%. Uh, down into the 70s last season. Uh, I don't think anything of the old glory is coming back. No, and uh, last year's uh, bad season was not exactly uh, out of the blue. Uh, his performance had been declining pretty steadily since uh, sort of a high watermark in 2014 or so. He hit 286, and it went steadily downhill from there, 250, 234, 203 last year, and everything else following along. His slugging percentage went down from uh, sort of the mid-fives all the way down to 366 last year. That's just terrible, and his isolated power was uh, under 175, which is not even replacement level. Um, having said all that, I guess uh, maybe there's something going on here, but certainly nobody seemed that interested in Jose Bautista during the offseason, and it just seems weird, and especially, Nick, it seems weird to me because if they needed outfield support, they have Ronald Acuna sitting there waiting to come up to the major leagues. I wonder if this slows down his journey to the majors, and if so, what are the fans in Atlanta going to lose their minds? I don't think it's going to slow down his journey to the majors. I think, if anything, they were looking at Bautista as a possible possible help at third base where the Atlanta's been struggling. So I think they may have been looking for some magic there. Uh, I kind of doubt that they're looking at him in the outfield where they've got a little bit of a logjam anyway with Acuna uh, certainly on the way up very soon. Another injury in Pittsburgh, Josh Harrison, the second baseman there, is going to miss six weeks. He got hit by a pitch on the hand and broke his hand. Rick Green covers the Pirates for Baseball HQ and playing time today. What happens in Pittsburgh now that Josh Harrison is out of the lineup? The um, What's likely to happen at second base is Adam Frazier and Sean Rodriguez are likely to see the bulk of the playing time at second base in Pittsburgh at this point. Uh, Rodriguez, and uh, we, we bumped him up 10% and bumped Frazier up 15%. Uh, both of those guys could actually be be semi-productive in the middle infield. So our guys to look at. Frazier has uh, excellent plate skills, 8% walk rate, 86% contact rate, uh, 0 points in 2000, and good speed, 119 speed. So Frazier is sort of an intriguing option if you're looking, especially if you're looking for stolen bases. Um, so I, I think that, and that will help us certainly break up some of the outfield log jam in, in Pittsburgh. And so 
I, I think they'll be all right with Frazier and then or Rodriguez at second base for in the short term uh, while Harrison is recovering. They also called up uh, an infielder from AAA, Max Moroff. I guess we're not expecting the world from Max Moroff. Right. No, not at all. I think not someone that's the, um, really at, for depth at second base and around the infield. Um, we had planned some playing time for him anyway, so are not adding anything to his projections. At last, Nick, some news that isn't about a new injury. A new BaseballHQ.com writer, Fred Zinke, covers the National League East for the site in playing time tomorrow. And Fred reports that the logjam in the Phillies infield could be clearing up soon. I'm going to guess this has something to do with Scott Kingery forcing his way into the mix. What's the story in the Philadelphia infield? Actually, what's happening at this point is that J.P. Crawford has been struggling uh, at shortstop and, and off to a very slow start, a 231 on base percentage. Uh, which has to be a little bit concerning. Uh, you don't even like to see that as a batting average, but if that's all the, the on-base clip you're getting, that's just really awful. So I think there's a good chance that uh, Crawford will either get sent down or, or on the bench, and Scott Kingery uh, so far has made as many appearances at shortstop as he has anywhere else uh, and could begin to see uh, considerably more regular playing time at shortstop. That then begins to, to uh, open up outfield positions, uh, and we'll have Nick Williams and Aaron Althier and Odabel Herrera uh, with a little more playing time in the outfield as a result of things get, getting opened up a bit in the infield if Kingery moves there for, for regular at-bats. So I think that's what Fred sees as a potential down the road in Philadelphia. Um, Crawford owners certainly had to be concerned already, and I think I would be having even more concern with the possibility that Kingery could come in and take over at shortstop. Yeah, I, the way it looks, you'd have to almost bet that uh, Kingery's going to be the guy going uh, the rest of the way, unless uh, unless J.P. Crawford can turn it around in a hurry, and boy, oh boy. This has gone on for quite a while, Nick. This is not like a short-term slump. He was not that terrific with the bat last year. No, he year. wasn't. I mean, this was, a, this was a guy who was expected to be a really elite, uh, was a really elite prospect, but simply so far has not produced in the major leagues and certainly has excellent tools, a good chance that he'll eventually turn it around, but this may not be the season that he, that he actually breaks out. Somebody to watch for in the future. I like those kind of guys who are elite level prospects who struggle and then they kind of get forgotten. Uh, it's the old uh, Alex Rodriguez path to stardom that baseball HQ talks about those, those 10 steps where, you know, much ballyhooed prospect comes up, flops, everybody forgets about him, works his way back. And the next thing you know, well, he's Alex Rodriguez. Absolutely. You know? You're picking up for a buck in your keeper league, and you're in great shape. Absolutely, yeah. Staying in Philadelphia, Fred Zinke was also reporting there might be less clarity with their rotation. Ben Lively is not looking so lively. He's got a 587 ERA, a 163 whip through his first three starts. Not to, not tremendous numbers. No, uh, not at all. He's certainly not doing well thus far. And so um, there's certainly a chance that that role may change. Uh, Zach Eflin at, uh, at uh, AAA is, is off to a good start. Uh, and he's likely to get the next opportunity. Eflin has struggled in his previous time in the majors, uh, but right now has very solid career numbers in the minor leagues. 3.41 ERA, 1.19 whip. Um, initial two starts, he allowed two runs over 11 innings, so had been pitching well and certainly could replace Lively sooner if not later. In San Diego, Nick, uh, right-handed starter Tyson Ross is off to a terrific start. Uh, he was one of the pitchers that Ryan Bloomfield wrote about in his speculator column. He called snap judgments about pitchers. Uh, these are kind of uh, quick analyses of guys in the early going. Uh, Ryan really likes uh, Tyson Ross. What's he saying? Well, you know, everybody, I, I've, I've been seeing that in other places too. Everybody kind of looking at Ty Ross and saying, uh, 
saying, what's going on here? Um, Ty Ross has been the first, first three starts. Ty Ross was very good. Seven earned runs, uh, 14 strikeouts, four walks, and 18 inning pitch. And you remember, Ty Ross missed most of the last two seasons uh, because of thoracic outlet syndrome. Uh, he's got his, uh, his extreme ground ball tilt back as well. Um, all four of his outings are 50% plus ground ball rate. Uh, we can't say he's back yet. We're probably not going to get 200 innings out of him. But uh, I would sort of look at Ty Ross at this point. I, um, remember, uh, he was a very dominant pitcher three years ago and uh, could be a very sneaky source uh, of some profit this year if he stays healthy and continues pitching the way he's been. Boy, isn't that always the case, though, when you're talking about pitchers? If he stays healthy, and unfortunately, the track record suggests that that's not uh, by any means a guarantee. Yeah, I think that's true. The track record with Ross suggests that, and the track record, the thoracic outlet syndrome uh, has not been a a real successful uh, return situation. Uh, Guys who have that do not come back usually to their their former glory. So um, uh, it's something to kind of keep in mind. I wouldn't pay a lot for Ty Ross at this point. But if you've got a, uh, a spot at the back of your roster, might be worth taking a chance on. And finally, Nick, one more pitcher to talk about, Luis Castillo of the Reds. Boy, he was highly touted coming into the season. I saw a lot of people putting Luis Castillo up in that sort of second tier right after the, the uh, you know, uh, Kershaw's and, and uh, Max Scherzer's and stuff. You start talking about uh, Steven uh, Strasburg and guys like that. And there's Luis Castillo's name. And here he is after four starts. He's got a 6.75 ERA. Looks completely lost. Uh, Stephen Nickrand, our fine uh, columnist in his starting pitcher buyer's guide column, looked at some slow starting starters. Is it time to sell Luis Castillo? Uh, no, it's not. I mean, Luis Castillo is, is uh, his skills have been very, very good. Uh, the problem has been a 47% strand rate, a uh, 24% home run per fly rate, and those have just killed the surface stats. But Luis Castillo is pitching well, a 15% swinging strike rate. Uh, all of the things that we that we liked about Luis Castillo coming into the season are still there, uh, and I think he's going to break out very soon. If you've got an owner in your league who's uh, really willing to uh, to sell, uh, to, it's a good buy low opportunity. Let's put it that way on Luis Castillo because I think he's going to be very good and have a very fine season. You know what it's going to be for me, Nick? I'm going to be watching Luis Castillo to see how he does pitching from the stretch. Uh, so far this season, he's had a strikeout rate over 25% of batters faced with nobody aboard. As soon as there's runners on, his strikeout rate plummets to barely half that 25%, around 13, I think, something like that. And his walk rate is significantly higher with runners on as well, and his home run rate is almost double with men aboard. And, of course, uh, we talk about the home run rate and the strand rate, and those two things are linked because you get uh, guys aboard, all of a sudden you're not as effective, you're giving up more home runs, all of them score. And so you'd kind of expect that his strand rate would be low. And the question is, can he correct whatever's bothering him pitching from the stretch with those guys aboard to fix the home run problem? Because if he can't fix that, then the strand rate problem is going to stay as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Those two things are very clearly linked. Uh, and the, the way he's pitching out of the stretch could certainly make a difference. So um, I, that, that is a very good thing to, to look at as we move forward with Castillo. And we should say that after three starts, his ERA was uh, over seven, so the fact that it's over six now is uh, progress of a kind, I guess. Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst for BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com writer and director of news and analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. 
PD, hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. I understand you're in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, the home of Elvis Presley. Yeah, I am, and the uh, home of the uh, Memphis Redbirds as well. Uh, unfortunately, they're not there. Um, uh, they're not home this week, so I'm, uh, I'm not watching any baseball. And I wish I was, because it's right across from the Peabody Hotel, which is where I'm staying. Well, uh, in the meantime, I guess we can talk about some baseball here in the American League, starting, as usual, with injuries. They just keep uh, keep on coming. In Baltimore, the Orioles have lost second baseman Jonathan Scope to an oblique strain. Boy, it seems like we're seeing a lot of oblique strains. Uh, he'd been struggling at the plate anyway, but he at least was playing, which suggests that if the injury was taking some kind of toll, he might not be out of the lineup for long. You know, Matt Dodge covered the situation in playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What's going to happen with the second base situation, Jonathan Scope and the Orioles? Yeah, that's my take on the injury as well. Uh, it's a grade one. Uh, they say it's the least uh, severe strain. So I guess Scope could be back uh, not too long after he's uh, he's gone. Um, the Orioles have moved Tim Beckham from third base to second base. Uh, at least they did in the beginning. And, uh, and they began using Danny Valencia to cover third base. Uh, Valencia hasn't been particularly consistent or really awful he's four for 28 so far with six walks and a couple of homers for the season now over the last couple of games they've been trying Louis Sardinas at uh, second base and moving back and back to third base and he doesn't offer a lot with the bat Uh, I'm not sure this is a great place to speculate if you're a fantasy owner just because of the fluidity of the situation and the limited upside of these names. Uh, gun to my head, Valencia could be rostered in deeper leagues. He's hit 50 home runs over the past three years and provided decent batting average, but those were all pretty much at bat-fueled situations. Uh, he had almost 1,300 at bats over the last three years. And given his glove, I don't see him getting that in Baltimore, who has plenty of DHs already on the roster and on the DL. Yeah, I remember uh, as soon as you said Valencia was playing third, I thought, boy, that doesn't sound right because, you know, he's mostly a, a not-that-good outfielder. I've seen him play a little bit of first base, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, not distinguishing himself with the glove, it doesn't seem like there's a re- ready path to playing time, especially if Scope's out for a short period. Maybe he's let somebody else bid on Danny Valencia. Also in the American League East, uh, Josh Donaldson finally goes to the DL. He's got right shoulder inflammation. Gosh, Jock, uh, in the early going, it was just sad watching Donaldson trying to make the throw across the diamond. He was making throwing errors. He was missing first base by 15 feet. Uh, Whenever he tries to make those throws, he gets this trouble with his shoulder, which is going to impinge on his hitting as well. Uh, I haven't seen any timeline for his return, Jock. He could reportedly be out longer than minimum 10 days. He's going to go into a throwing program. Uh, who benefits? Although I think I know. Donaldson's hitting hasn't been that awful. I mean, he's got an 808 on uh, OPS with three homers and 46 at bats. Uh, but uh, yeah, Yangerbis uh, Salarte has been the, the Jays' best hitter, posting a 983 OPS with four home runs over 54 at bats. And after spending all some time all over the infield, he has third base pretty much on lockdown while Donaldson's gone. Uh, one of the reasons I've always liked Solarte is this versatility, and he usually reaches his floor uh, uh, because of it. He's always had some upside in the right situation. I'm starting to think Toronto might be it. 
Yeah, it looks good for playing time for Yandrovers Solarte. He's also very popular with the crowd because of his uh, animated antics on the bench. He's a seems like a rah rah guy in the good sense of the term. Um, Donaldson's roster spot while he's on the DL goes to Teoscar Hernandez, a prospect who uh, began raking right away when he came back from the minors. How does Teoscar Hernandez being on the twenty-five man uh, affect things in Toronto? Yeah, Teoscar so far uh, eight for nineteen since he's returned to Toronto, and he he's going to start in the outfield every day at least for the foreseeable future, and he's going to push Steve Pierce and Granderson to uh, to DH. I've always liked this guy. I don't think he's going to end up being a high batting average hitter, but he has uh, good speed and power, and he can defend well. Uh, he's getting an opportunity to win a corner spot, it seems, uh, given Randall Grichik's ongoing struggles. It's it's going to be interesting to see what the Blue Jays do when Kendrys Morales, who's the regular DH, uh, returns from the from the uh, disabled list, which which I understand could happen this weekend. So it, it looks like they have some decisions to make, and Teoscar's making things tough for them. And to their credit, Pierce and Granderson are also making things tough for them by playing pretty well. And Gritchick's starting to hit as well, so it could be an embarrassment of, if not exactly riches, uh, an embarrassment of possibilities for the for the Jays to make sense of. Going to be a fluid situation, I think, for the next little while in Toronto. The struggling Tampa Rays also suffered a huge loss. Kevin Kiermeyer. They're a tremendous center fielder, has a torn right thumb ligament. He's had surgery. Uh, they say he'll be out at least eight weeks, perhaps 12, perhaps even more than that. The Rays are already off to a horrible start. Uh, this is not a help for the Tampa Bay Rays or for Kevin Kiermeyer owners. Yeah, early on, it looks like to replace Kiermeyer, they've moved uh, Malik Smith over from left field to take his center field spot. And they've called up 25-year-old rookie Johnny Field to make his MLB debut. And apparently, he's been starting every day since the call-up. Uh, he's gone three for 17 with stri- uh, five strikeouts and no great shakes there. It looks like he's the kind of guy who can do a little bit of everything, but who doesn't do anything particularly well. He's not one of the Rays' better rookies. Um, Accounting stat play, maybe if he can stay uh, in the lineup, but who knows uh, how long will that last. Uh, and, and this is why the Rays' immediate outlook is, is a little depressing. I don't see anything on the immediate, on the immediate horizon in that outfield that can really help, um, especially since they've moved, they've apparently moved uh, AAA prospect Jake Bowers back to first base on a permanent basis. So I'm not sure what they're going to do longer term. Of course, this is going to be exciting news for anybody who rostered Malik Smith, hoping for a handful of bags in part-time play. If he gets a real long run of consistent playing time, Malik Smith could really provide a lot of stolen bases. Yeah, Malik is going to run, and uh, and yep, uh, if if you're looking for a bright spot in that uh, Tampa Bay outfield, uh, um, Malik is it uh, right now, and and it would it would seem to me, and mostly, given his his uh, running game, that he's probably already taken. So, so far we have uh, Jonathan Scope owners, Josh Donaldson owners, and Kevin Kiermeyer owners all have headaches, and joining them is Byron Buxton, who's actually missed three games with migraines, and they put him on the DL. Uh, how will they replace Byron Buxton? I don't think you can replace Byron Buxton, but who gets the playing time? No, you can't. Uh, Buxton's roster spot was immediately taken over by Ryan Lamar, who's been kind of up and down all year with the club. He's another guy who can do a little bit of everything, but nothing particularly well. Um, fortunately for Minnesota, he can play a little bit of center field. Uh, this one bears some watching because Max Kepler had taken over for Buxton in center field over the past few nights in Puerto Rico with reserve Robbie Grossman uh, taking Kepler's spot uh, in right field. But but Buck, but Kepler hurt his knee late last night in the uh, extra inning game in Puerto Rico. 
he was replaced by Lamar, who actually got three hits and hit a walk-off single to win the game in the 16th inning. If uh, Kepler has to miss some time, Lamar would be the likely center field starter, I think. Uh, but again, another guy whose upside is pretty limited. Lamar was actually covered, uh, I think, last week or the week before by Alex Becky in our frequent flyer uh, commentary. He seemed to think that Lamar might be worth looking at, and if he's got a path to playing time, especially in uh, deep leagues like American League only, maybe it's uh, worth a look. Uh, and finally, the Rangers' middle infield woes just go from bad to worse to worse to worse. Jurickson Profar has missed several games under the concussion protocol after he took uh, the playing time of Elvis Andrews with Rugnet Odor already out. This is a real problem for the Rangers, and the Rangers are not playing well either. Uh, you discussed all of this in playing time tomorrow this week. You cover the American League West. Uh, where do the Rangers go from here with all these injuries? Yeah, it's interesting. First, they have to see if Profar can respond to the days off and, uh, and get out of this uh, concussion protocol. Um, obviously, uh, uh, Profar was going to get a, a, a big playing time jump with uh, both o Odor and, and Elvis Andrus being out for an extended period of time. Um, his plate skills are fine. The problem with Profar, obviously, is that uh, ever since his injuries, he just hasn't stung the ball very hard. Uh, a lot of us uh, were hoping that uh, the time between between now and these injuries would uh, would maybe return some of the pop that he was showing when he was the number one prospect in baseball. It seems like a long, long time ago. Now you just got to wonder if he's just snake bit uh, and behind him. It's it's pretty bleak in Texas. They're using Drew Robinson in uh, at second base the last few games, and Robinson's become legendary now for his lack of contact skills at the MLB level. I think he's struck out 26 times in 46 at bats so far. Um, they've got another guy we've talked about before, uh, uh, Zia Kiner Falafa, who um, has moved from second base to shortstop while. Uh, while Profar is out. Uh, this is a guy who I think has hit something like five home runs in 1,740 minor league at bats now. He's starting to sell out uh, his decent plate skills for some power, and uh, and it's actually showing up in the early results. Uh, but he has, nine, he has nine strikeouts now, and I think 22 at bats. So who knows that how that's going to end up in Texas. Uh, it's not a real good situation there. What about uh, Hanser Alberto? Yeah, there's another guy who has had some time with Texas. Uh, he's got a career 194 uh, batting average, 197 expected uh, batting average, so he's not too far off. Uh, over 155 major league at bats. He's in AAA. If, uh, if Profar goes on the DL, um, certainly uh, he could be one of the guys who gets the call, but uh, boy, I shouldn't, sure wouldn't want to have to consider rostering him for, from a fantasy standpoint. And finally, Jock, the uh, Texas Rangers have a Cuban import named Andy Ibanez. I don't even think he's on the 40-man. Uh, could he be an option at second base if things get desperate? Yeah, he could be. He's a 25-year-old who um, used to be thought of, I think, previously as a, as a better prospect than he's turned out to be, at least so far. Uh, he's 10 for 38 in his first taste of AAA, no home runs. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if he might not be overmatched, but... Uh, you know, again, the Rangers have to try something. He could play second base, probably not shortstop. So it's another guy that could be called up. All right, Jock, uh, thanks very much for helping us out with the American League. Enjoy the rest of your time in Memphis, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, PD. Appreciate it. See ya. Jock Thompson is an analyst and the director of news and analysis at BaseballHQ.com. When we return our Baseball HQ commentaries, we'll have the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Pitcher Matchups all coming up for you on Baseball HQ Radio. 
But right now it's time in the show and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say with confidence that BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In part two of his series on trading, from A to Zinke columnist Trader Fred Zinke discusses negotiation tactics. In Playing Time Tomorrow, Joseph Pitleski's coverage of the American League Central looks at some closers in waiting in Detroit and Kansas City, the outfield situation in Chicago, and more. And in the Speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield will be looking at some early snap judgments on pitchers. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at Baseball HQ all the time, and why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have Frequent Flyer and our Pitcher Matchups report. And leading us off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Rockies third base prospect Colton Welker is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. While the Colorado Rockies don't have the deepest farm system in baseball, the big league club does still play half of its game in hitter-friendly Coors Field, making any offensive minded position player worth watching. One player who has gotten off to a quick start in 2018 is third base prospect Colton Welker. Welker has only played 12 games for High A Lancaster, but so far he seems to like to hit in the Cal, and is currently slashing 410 with a 537 on base percentage and a 744 slugging percentage with 4 doubles, 3 home runs, and 12 walks against 11 strikeouts. Welker, the Rockies' number 4 prospect, tends to get overlooked, in part because the Rockies have Nolan Arenado at the major league level, but the 20-year-old third baseman can flat out hit. Welker has excellent pitch recognition, good plate discipline, and above average bat speed, and he should develop average to above power down the road. He's a solid defender who works hard at his craft and continues to improve. Because of his size and approach, he draws inevitable comparisons to Arenado and has a solid track record of offensive production. He now owns a career slash line, 346 batting average, 400 on base percentage, and 515 slugging percentage, with 37 doubles and 14 home runs and 503 at bats. For those of you in deep keeper formats, Colton Welker is a must-own, and the Rockies have shown a willingness in the past to move players around once they are ready for the majors. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on those rising stars. This week's prospect coverage includes daily call-ups reports on St. Louis outfielder Tyler O'Neill, also the subject of frequent flyer in a few moments, San Diego left-hander Tyler Webb, Mets right-hander Gerson Bautista, and Texas outfielder Renato Nunez, among many more, and in the eyes have it, Baseball HQ scout Chris Blessing is in Birmingham, Alabama to put his eyes on White Sox AA prospects, including catchers Zach Collins and Sebi Zavala. These days, knowing the prospects can mean the difference in most of our leagues, and BaseballHQ.com is giving you the prospect tools you can use to make that difference. Now it's time for our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is St. Louis outfielder Tyler O'Neill, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. 22-year-old St. Louis Cardinals slugger Tyler O'Neill is bringing it. 
What Tyler O'Neill brings to the plate is power, big-time power, an observation amplified by two 30-plus home run seasons in the past three years. Rated number 26 on Baseball HQ's Top 75 Impact Prospects list for 2018, ahead of notables such as Fernando Tatis Jr., Glaber Torres, and Michael Kopech, our frequent flyer, Tyler O'Neill could be poised to have a breakout season in 2018 if he finds the playing time in St. Louis's already crowded outfield. The prize of the Marco Gonzalez trade with Seattle last July, this former third-round draft pick by the Mariners in 2013, who hails from Canada, just snapped a 10-game hitting streak in his first 12 games of the 2018 season, in addition to batting 388 and launching six home runs prior to his April 19th big league promotion. The guy can hit. But as today's call-ups analysis on BaseballHQ.com demonstrates, Tyler O'Neill also brings the strikeouts. Bunches of them. In fact, he struck out 151 times in only 130 games in 2017. Once again, that's 31 home runs and 151 strikeouts in 130 games last season. So I guess from that description, you could say that Tyler O'Neill is both bringing the noise, the home runs, and bringing the funk, the strikeouts. And that's why Tyler O'Neill, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. But power will be his carrying tool, according to Baseball HQ's 2018 Minor League Baseball Analyst, which rates Tyler O'Neill as having the best raw power in the Cardinals system. Yet beware, his all-or-nothing aggressive approach at the plate could take a toll on your team's ratio categories. Digging deeper, something we like to do at BaseballHQ.com, using Tyler O'Neill's 68% career minor league contact rate and his 9% career minor league walk rate as leading indicators, our analysis tools provide us with an expectation benchmark of a 248 batting average at the major league level. Still, his power is tantalizing. Consider this. The St. Louis Cardinals have not had a player hit more than 30 home runs in a season since 2012. In fact, not one Cardinals hitter circled the bases more than 25 times in 2017. So maybe the power outage is officially over. When you decide to add Tyler O'Neill, our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for pitcher matchups. At Baseball HQ, the matchups are rated on a scale, with starts higher than plus one rated as strong starts, starts rated at minus 051 or worse rated as weak starts, and those in between rated as judgment calls. Here with the scan of Chris Sale in Oakland to face Sean Manaya and other weekend matchups is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. This weekend features 15 must-start pitchers with matchup ratings greater than 1. Ten of those starting pitchers are in team tandems, three from the American League and two from the National League. It's like Groundhog Weekend in the National League, as the Washington Nationals pair of Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg again lead the way. This time, they head into pitcher-friendly L.A., where Scherzer should outduel the Dodgers' Rich Hill on Saturday. The right-handed Scherzer has a large matchup rating differential advantage with a 2.71 versus the left-handed Hill's 0.1. 
But on Sunday, the right-handed Strasburg's matchup rating of 114 is eclipsed by Dodger left-hander Clayton Kershaw's matchup rating of 264. The other National League club with a must-start 1-2 punch is the only one of the five teams to have both starters' matchup ratings above 2. The New York Mets should overrun Atlanta in the Braves' relatively neutral SunTrust Park. Last weekend's marquee matchup man Noah Syndergaard, with his matchup rating of 267 this weekend, should best Sean Newcomb and his matchup rating of 042 on Saturday. On Sunday, look for Jacob deGrom with his matchup rating of 205 to top Julio Tehran and his matchup rating of minus 064. In the American League, Cleveland has Baltimore outmanned in Maryland. Tampa should trip up the Twins in Target Field, and Houston has it in for the White Sox in Chicago's South Side. The Indians start Trevor Bauer in hitter-friendly Camden Yards on Saturday for what should be a close game. The Cleveland right-hander has a matchup rating of 127, while the Orioles' Dylan Bundy brings in a respectable 0.84. On Sunday in Baltimore, Cleveland's Michael Clevenger pits his matchup rating of 110 against the O's Chris Tillman, who has a matchup rating of minus 224. That gives Clevenger a comfortable matchup rating differential advantage of 334 to go along with a long shot for a Cy Young Award from BaseballHQ.com's Ryan Bloomfield in his recent Speculator column. Moving from Maryland to Minneapolis, the visiting Tampa Bay Rays have the upper hand against the hometown Twins in pitcher-friendly target field, assuming the weather cooperates. On Saturday, Chris Archer carries in a matchup rating of 158 against Minnesota's Lance Lynn and his matchup rating of minus 037. On Sunday, it's Blake Snell and his matchup rating of 115 versus Kyle Gibson and his matchup rating of minus 009. And speaking of double O, it may take James Bond-like escape artistry for either of the White Sox starters to best two aces from the defending World Series champion Houston Astros in Chicago's pitcher-friendly guaranteed rate park. On Saturday, Justin Verlander has a matchup rating of 201 versus the Shy Sox James Shields and his matchup rating of minus 082. On Sunday, it's Houston's Dallas Keuchel and his matchup rating of 157, outshining Chicago's Lucas Giolito and his matchup rating of minus 111. Last weekend, our marquee matchup man was Noah Syndergaard for his incredible matchup rating of 322. This weekend's marquee matchup man has done Syndergaard one better. Boston Red Sox left-hander Chris Sale has an astounding matchup rating of 323. Remember, a matchup rating of 3-0-0 is in the 99.85th percentile. Sale heads into Oakland's pitcher-friendly O.co Coliseum on Sunday to face lefty Sean Manaya and his matchup rating of minus 032. In his four outings thus far, Sale has gone 22 innings, walked 5, and struck out 31. That's a control rate of 2.0 walks per nine, a dominance rate of 12.7 strikeouts per nine, and a command ratio of 6.2 strikeouts per walk for a base performance value or BPV of 189. Sale has an expected ERA of 260 and a whip of 095. The 2018 baseball forecaster reminded us that Sale struck out 308 batters in 2017, marking only the second time a 300 strikeout total has been reached since 2002. In his April 15 facts and flukes analysis, BaseballHQ.com's Brandon Cruz pointed out that against right-handed hitters in 2017, Sale posted a career-best command ratio of 7.2 strikeouts per walk, even better than his command ratio of 6.8 strikeouts per walk versus left-handed hitters. That's just not fair. 
To summarize, in the National League this weekend, Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg both looked strong for the Nats, with Strasburg having his hands full against the equally reliable Clayton Kershaw on Sunday. Noah Syndergaard and Jacob deGrom also looked good for the Mets. In the American League, Trevor Bauer and Dylan Bundy looked to lock horns on Saturday. On Sunday, Michael Clevenger looks okay, and you can load your lineups with Indians against Chris Tillman. Chris Archer and Blake Snell should come out on top for Tampa, and the Chicago White Sox appear overmatched at home against the defending World Series champion Houston Astros, Justin Verlander, and Dallas Keuchel. To top it off, marquee matchup man Chris Sale should excel in Oakland on Sunday. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick has our weekend pitcher matchups here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we return, part two of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. That's coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. And this crowd just training board at every pitch. Here it comes. A swing of this. Two strikes, ball one to Dale Mitchell. Listen to this crowd. I'll guarantee that nobody, but nobody has left this ballpark. And if somebody did manage to leave early, man, he's missing the greatest. Two strikes and a ball. Mitchell waiting. Stands deep, feet close together. Larson is ready. Gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. A no-hitter. A perfect game for John Larson. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back. I'm still here. You you are indeed, and I'm glad of it. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about something I saw in your Twitter feed recently, that you were eyeballing the closer situation in St. Louis, and I know you mentioned getting Bud Norris. I'm not a National League guy, but I thought the signing of Greg Holland had really settled that situation. Now we have Gregerson back off the DL. We have Bud Norris getting the recent save opportunities and converting them, and we have Greg Holland, the big signee. Uh, when you assess this whole situation between your own assessment, what baseball HQ analysts have suggested, which way do you see this finally settling? You know, it's hard to say. Uh, we were debating this uh, with a couple of subscribers in our forums, uh, you know, this morning or last night, and you know, there were a couple of differences of opinion. Of opinion, I can give you mine. You know, I like I said, I I picked up Norris in at least one week this weekend, but it was more about price enforcing than a sort of a full throated endorsement that the job was his. But the, for now, at least, the job seems to be his, especially after he picked up that. You know, what ended up being a five-out save the other night, that tweet I sent was you know, sort of in the middle of that game. After he got out of the eighth, I was wondering what they were going to do in the ninth. Uh, it turned out they had already used Holland, and it was the first day that Gregerson came off the DL, so I was wondering if they were going to go to Gregerson there. But they stuck with Norris, and Norris got out, of, got out of the game and got the save, and now he seems to have a hammerlock on the job. I, I think that's probably short-term because, well, he's Bud Norris. Um, and they gave Holland you know, a ton of money, which I think matters some at least, you know, that doesn't mean he's going to get the closing gig if he keeps, you know, blowing, blowing leads in the seventh and eighth all the time. They're not going to use him in the ninth, but once he gets straightened out, I got to believe they're going to work him back into the closer role when he proves he's worthy of it. And I think that will happen at some point, but, uh, you know, one of our other subscribers was suggesting that there's 
when Gregerson came off the DL, that they thought Gregerson was going to be the guy because he was the guy before he went on the DL, which admittedly was before they signed Holland, before Norris started pitching so well. And that could still happen, especially if Norris's you know, uh, expiration date comes before Holland gets himself straightened out. But, you know, these closer gigs are sort of a possession is nine-tenths of the law thing. And right now, Norris has possession, and he's been lights out. And Holland, in particular, isn't pitching well enough to take it from him right now. And Gregerson, we haven't seen pitch at all yet, so he's still a TBD. So, you know, as far as my fab bit, if I get, you know, a month's worth of saves from Norris, I think I'll be more than happy with that. And if it's any more than that, that's great. And if it blows up, if it changes sooner than that, you know, that probably depends more on Gregerson and Holland than it does on Norris. And of course, uh, Bud Norris had 19 saves last year for the Angels in a kind of a rotating situation. So it's not like this is some kind of wholly new phenomenon for Bud Norris. He's got some experience in the role, although he didn't last particularly long with the Angels either. No, but you're right. That counts, especially because, you know, we also got to remember that we're dealing with uh, the uh, what we're really trying to do here in some sense is predict the whims of the manager. And, you know, Mike Matheny is one of the tougher guys to predict, but, you know, maybe it's helping him and maybe it helped him go to Norris that Norris had that quote unquote proven closer label because he had the 19 saves last year. It's not helping him now. He's got the job, but maybe that was one of the reasons they went to him instead of, you know, Tyler Lyons or Dominic Leone or somebody. Uh, speaking of the Angels, uh, same question this year again. They seem to have a rotating cast of characters. Right now they seem to be looking at Kenyon Middleton to be their guy, but uh, is that etched in stone to, to, to owners, for owners to look at? I, I think it's less etch, etched in stone, and I think the difference between that bullpen and, say, the Cardinals bullpen is that the Cardinals bullpen is deeper in better options. You know, a lot of these guys we're talking about in St. Louis are sufficiently skilled to close, and, and it's more of a question of where Matheny lands than whether the guy can hold the gig for the long term. But I think Socia's got fewer quality options. Bedrosian's got some good skills when he's healthy, but he's never healthy. Uh, Parker was decent at times last year, but is hardly the lights out closer. You know, Middleton is kind of that guy you were talking about in the earlier segment. You know, he, you, you made out very well if you bid on him as the third guy in a two-man bullpen this year where everybody thought it was going to be Parker or Bedrosian throughout March, and he just kind of snuck in over the finish line at the end. But, you know, is he going to hold that? He's, he's got kind of got the stuff for it. You know, he hits the upper 90s and, you know, is a two-pitch guy, and, you know, he's certainly, the, you know, this is not a Brad Ziegler profile. This is a, you know, a real arm, but, yeah, I... I can't say, you know, even though I picked him up in a bunch of leagues, you know, I'm still in the mindset I was sort of set with Norris. If I get a month or a couple of months of saves from him, I'm going to be happy. I'm not inking him in for 35 just yet. What about Jim Johnson, who's currently kind of the uh, seventh inning setup guy, but he's got a background of 50 plus saves for the Orioles a couple of years with ERAs well under three. Then he had that terrible blow up in 2014 where he just stank unbelievably. Then in 2016, back to a three ERA, a 120 whip and 20 more saves, 22 saves last year. Jim Johnson seems to have a pedigree and it's starting to look like 2014 might've been some injury kind of outlier. 
if this were a situation where the two or three guys in front of him were all supremely skilled, then I'd say that, you know, someone's eventually going to take the job and run with it before it gets to Johnson. But, you know, these guys are all shaky enough and unproven enough that, you know, Socia may have to spin the wheel so many times that in an emergency or for lack of other options, they're just looking for that, you know, quote unquote veteran stability and wanting to, you know, get back on firm ground. He might have to turn to Johnson at some point. I, I, I can't rule that out given, uh, you know, there, there's volume of competition, but it's not a very, you know, it's not an elite level of quality there that Johnson's battling against. So he could work his way in there. And right now his ERA is 348, a whip of 116. So he's he's pitching fairly decently, even by those metrics. And then by uh, the, the ones we look at, uh, almost a strikeout per inning, walking about three and a half guys. So his command ratio is about two and a half. I don't know. It doesn't look like it's as impossible as you would have thought back in 2014 when you thought this guy may never pitch in the big leagues again, never mind be a closer. Uh, How about Houston, Ray? You got A.J. Hinch over there who now appears set on using matchups and possibly cutting the saves expectations for Ken Giles, who's on my roster in a tout American league. So is Jim Johnson, by the way. And maybe increasing save opportunities for last year's Lima wonder uh, Chris Devensky. How much credibility, shall we say, do you give to A.J. Hinch when he says he's going to mix and match? He thinks uh, he said he thinks Giles is going to be the guy who has the most saves at the end of the year, but certainly doesn't say that he's going to be the primary closer. What do you think's going on in Houston with the World Series champs and this whole closer issue? It looks to me like they are playing the long game here, and maybe things change in the summer if the Angels are really pushing them. But I think they're playing for October, and I think they know that their pitchers all carried a heavy workload last year into the postseason. You can remember how they used their sort of tandem starters in the playoffs, you know, with guys like Morton and McCullers coming out of the bullpen for multiple inning release relief stints and how successful that was. But you sort of forget how they got backed into that corner. And that was because Giles ran out of gas halfway through October and was suddenly unable to throw strikes. And Davinsky, you know, made it a little further. He kind of lasted into the World Series before he melted down. But those guys kind of had nothing left for October. And if they're thinking about getting into October, I think as much of the matchups that Hinch is playing right now is about managing workloads and managing these guys and not burning them out and not using them on back-to-back days if they don't have to. These guys are going to win a ton of games. They're probably going to win the division by 15 or 20 games. And that's not to say that they aren't taking the pennant race seriously, but I think they're, at least early in the season here, they're trying to, you know, sort of – pump the brakes a little bit on all these guys and manage their workloads and not have them throw too many innings in anger this early. So, you know, I, I, I think they have a bunch of guys they trust there, and I think that as long as they can get away with sort of babying them like this, they'll continue to do it. And the roles may clear clarify, especially if the Angels keep pushing them in, into the second half of the season. But, you know, these guys are all effective closers, and they can all close games effectively. And if, you know, I, I really think what Hitch is, working about, is worrying about here is having as many of them as possible possible with you know sort of you know full arsenals ready to go in October and he doesn't care who gets the saves as much as he cares about that we're also seeing a fairly unexpected uh, rough start for Kenley Jansen who's 
before the season was the uh, odds-on favorite to be the best closer in all of baseball. He looks pretty shaky so far from both a results and a skills perspective. How do you and the Baseball HQ analysts assess that situation with Kenley Jansen? Yeah, I'm fairly worried about that. I, I think some of what I just said about Houston applies there too. And it, you know, in Jansen's case, he's so much better than everybody else in that pen. They're leaving him to be the closer. But you know, some of this might be, you know, uh, the shortened off season and the workload he carried in October having some residual effects. Some of it might just be, you know, we don't know whether he's at max effort right now. They may be, you know, kind of keeping the, uh, you know, keep, keeping the kid gloves on him a little bit too, and not have, asking him not to go all out right now because they want him to last for seven months so you know i think all of those are considerations you know it's a different thing when he's blowing games if there's something physically wrong with him i would have to believe that for all the reasons we were just talking about and how important he is to them he would be shut down and he's not so i gotta believe that you know if there's nothing physical there maybe it's mechanical or maybe it's just arm strength he's gradually building up and the velocity isn't quite there yet and they're letting him sort of work through that in you know it, it in the early season here but you know for sure when he's off multiple miles an hour he looks like he's not right and it's just a question of whether the Dodgers think that's you know something they're aware of and comfortable with him just gradually ramping it up over time or if there's something that they haven't discovered there yet looks pretty consistent across his velocity he's off about 1.7 miles an hour on the four seam and two seam and the slider's down a full two miles an hour and uh, I'll be the first to admit, Ray, I don't know if that's significant. It sounds like it is, but what do we think is a significant enough decline that it's worth worrying about? Yeah, you know, I haven't looked too closely at the log either. I think those numbers that you're quoting for the month of April are pretty typical. I think the league average velocity is typically off by a mile or a mile and a half uh, in April just because of what we were talking about, pitchers still ramping up, etc. So that doesn't sound like it's out of line, but um, our game logs actually have individual velocity readings, and I'm looking at it, I, I just pulled it up right now, and he was at um, you know he, his first appearance of the year and when he blew a game against the uh, Giants, he was actually only at 89 on the four-seam fastball, and he's been kind of gradually rationing that, rationing that up from 90 to 91 to 92 since then. So it looks like he's, he might very well just be on that, uh, you know, quote-unquote pitching himself into shape sort of plan. The other thing that would worry me if I were a Jansen owner or looking at him as a potential buy-low target in trades is – when I see his strikeout and walk and their and their respective ratios, I think I'd be a little worried, Ray, at this point because the strikeouts are off from 14 per nine dominance rate down to just about nine and a half. Walks are up from right around one to right around four. The uh, strikeout to walk rate last year was around 15 and a half. Now it's down to two. These the the loss of velocity is one thing, and it could be just a you know tightness that you're trying to work your way through, and that's fine. Is the same thing true of control, though? Because I've heard a lot of people say that if a pitcher suddenly loses control, that could be a precursor or an indicator of elbow problems. Yeah, I mean, certainly, no matter what you look at in this Jansen skill profile so far, it's a it's a rogues gallery of bad metrics from the you know, velocity being reduced to his, his first pitch strike rate is way, way down. And as you were saying, that's one of the things that should be stabilizing earlier, uh, you know, even in a small sample size, his swing strike rate is way down. Uh, you know, everything correlates to bad news here. And, but, you know, the only, the, the only good thing you can say about him is it's only seven innings and how much of a, you know, how much of a, 
conclusion should we be drawing off of seven innings in April? And like I said earlier, I got to believe that the, the Dodgers thought there was anything wrong in that elbow, and it's their business to know if there's anything wrong in that elbow that they would not be running him back out there. But that could change tonight. They could you know decide that it's time to shut him down and get, take a closer look, just to you know even if they don't think anything's wrong, just to make sure that's you know he's too valuable to them and for, to their aspirations six seven months from now for them to be taking any chances at all right now so you got to worry that they cut that they come to that realization at some point yeah those are excellent points uh we do have a, a fair number of pitches to look at as we were talking about earlier that the small sample size in innings is only seven but that's still quite a few pitches but to me, the biggest reason for, if not exactly optimism, at least for being relaxed about it, is that the Dodgers themselves seem to be taking it pretty easy, and uh, therefore, they're a good organization. They know what they're doing. Uh, that gives me a little bit of confidence that whatever this is, it'll sort itself out. Uh, also, talking about bullpens, Ray, more and more, even in mixed leagues, we're seeing owners are realizing the value of what we used to call Lima plan guys uh, who might not have any saves or many saves, but they do get into a lot of high leverage situations. I'm thinking of guys like Archie Bradley, Justin Grimm. Uh, there was a story about Justin Grimm on the site uh, on Thursday. Ryan Tapera of Toronto is doing well in a setup role. How should owners be responding to those type of guys in the new pitching environment? It's it's a something that we've been sort of wishing that major league teams would do more of in the last couple of years, and maybe because some of the good teams were doing it last year, it's a copycat league, and we're seeing more of that this year. You know, the, the, there's the guys you mentioned, there's Nate Jones, and you know, one of the other things that I like that I'm seeing is you know we're seeing more pitchers, both closers and non-closers, going multiple innings, which I think is great, both because I think it's a more efficient use of the resources. And also because, you know, then even if a closer goes multiple innings, he might get the next day off, and then we, you know, the, your setup man might might get the vulture a save on the next day. Uh, I've, I almost keeled over yesterday on Wednesday when uh, the A's had the A's and the White Sox had that really long extra inning game, and Blake Trinan blew the save for the A's in the ninth, um, and he came out for the tenth after that, which you know is not something you always see it's not that unusual but you know it can sort of go either way uh and what happened after that was you know i i can't remember ever seeing is trying came out for the 11th too and he actually went three full innings for a closer after blowing the you know two of them after blowing the save in the tie game and that you know in some sense that makes all the sense in the world because that's still a super high leverage situation and you want your best pitcher on the hill but the flip side of that is trying to you know i don't even know if the a's have a game today they may not but uh you know trying unavailable for at least one day after that i'm not sure maybe even two so you know, using fewer relievers for more innings and getting them, you know, the rest they need after that seems like a more efficient use of the resources to me than this whole, you know, starter goes five and then four four relievers all come in for one inning each and throw 15 pitches and you get through the inning six through nine that way. I, I much prefer the more, you know, the less paid by number bullpen and the more pick your spots, pick your matchups. Josh Hader's another guy who's been getting used that way by Craig Cancel and I, I love it. I, I think the more creativity there is in bullpen usage, the better. So do I, except for the year that I finally uh, buckled down and spent uh, $18 on Ken Giles to get my sure thing closer. Uh, that, but that's the way she works uh, sometimes. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, during the season, I always like to ask our experts to talk about players that you think might be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season, boons being guys you want, banes being guys you're a little cautious of. Uh, let's start with some boons. Uh, these are guys you think should interest our listeners right now. In the American League, who's a boon hitter for you? 
I'll say up top that I uh, mined all of these from our leading indicators page on the website, which is my favorite underutilized resource on the site, where we've got sort of canned reports that let you identify surgers and faders in any number of categories and splits. Uh, for an AL hitter, I came up with Yohan Moncada, uh, who's you know pu putting up some decent power and speed so far, but the batting average has been hanging down. But I think that's a function of weather and small sample size and I think the power in particular is gonna come and he's a guy who's got some swing in his swing and miss in his game the batting average might be a struggle all year but I think the power and speed is really going to blossom as the season goes on and there's a ton of ton of counting stat value in him and I don't know that his owner is gonna be looking to give him away right now but I would be making an offer and in the National League who's a hitter who's a boon for you you know I'm still you know, under, kind of under the radar, uh, you know, the Dodgers are a very te deep team, but I'm still kind of bullish on Jock Peterson. I liked the adjustments he made last year. He hasn't gotten a full opportunity yet this year. Chris Taylor's got center field on lockdown, and, you know, Matt Kemp's been very good, surprisingly, and that's been, uh, you know, sort of keeping Peterson in a reserve outfield role. But I caught on the site that he's uh, his contact rate right now is over 90%, and it's only 30-something at bats. But like we were saying, that's one of the things that stabilizes more quickly. And if he's putting up a contact rate at that level, his uh, you know, he be, he's a completely different player than we remember him being. And if he gets a playing time opportunity and can sustain any of that contact, I'm super interested in him. And with Matt Kemp standing in front of you, there's always a pretty good possibility that you're going to be getting some injury replacement time. Uh, in the American League, who's a boon pitcher for you? Uh, one guy that popped up on the leading indicators page that also had some other factors in his favor was uh, Kevin Gossman. Uh, I was talking to somebody yesterday who uh, re was telling me a story that I, I was not aware of from last year is that he was, uh, Gossman was much better pitching to Caleb Joseph than he was to, I guess at the time it was Wellington Castillo in Baltimore last year. And Gossman had a couple of rough starts uh, the beginning of this year, but he was better yesterday, which happened to be coincidentally the first time he pitched to Joseph. So if uh, Buck Showalter happens to pair those guys back up together, it might be what Gossman needs to unlock all of the other reasons we liked him coming into this season with from the uh, from the skill basis. So that's a that's a mix of half analytical and half uh, anecdotal lineup construction endorsement for you. Yeah, and and Kevin Gosman's a guy who's disappointing a lot of his owners, so he may be available for trade in your league on a buying low opportunity. Uh, how we're over in the National League, a boon pitcher. Uh, I'm going to go with Luis Castillo. He had a, he had a weird outing the other day where he threw six shutout innings, and, a, and the Reds were miraculously up like nine to nothing, and then he got knocked around a little bit in his. Uh, last inning of work and kind of ruined the outing. The thing that surprised me about that was uh, that maybe thing maybe people are off of Castillo was that you know that was a pretty decent uh, matchup for him. I forget who they were playing, uh, but it was some other uh, team that isn't very good. And he, I played him at DFS that night, and he was practically, he, he was really minimally owned. And I thought, you know, Luis Castillo was somebody who people were pretty high on coming into the year. And that, that low DFS ownership really just told me that people have been jumping off of that bandwagon. And since he had a good outing, but then ruined it in that last inning the other night, it's not like he threw up a uh, shutout that, you know, will make people think he turned it around. The, the runs he gave up in uh, that last inning of work may continue to mask the improvement he made. I think he's still a solid candidate to turn it around and people are apparently very down on him 
Yeah, we talked about him, Nick and I, in the National League Market Watch earlier in the show, and the the, the skills definitely look like they're still there. Uh, Luis Castillo could be another terrific buy-low opportunity. Uh, Ray Murphy's Boons, uh, Johan Mancata, Jock Peterson, Kevin Gaussman, and Luis Castillo. Let's move over to your Baines, Ray, uh, guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Uh, in the American League, again, who's a hitter, who's a Bane for you? Uh, I'm going to say Matt Olson in Oakland. You know him and you know Reese Hoskins in Philly were sort of the you know sort of had the same profile last year. Came up really late, had you know ridiculous power surges, and we wanted to see how much of them were real. And you know there are some warning signs in Olson's early season numbers. And you know it's early, and all the caveats we gave earlier still apply. But I was maybe this is me with selection bias because I was sort of skeptical of Olson coming into the season, but I continue to be skeptical. In the National League, who's a hitter you think should be considered a bane? I'm going to throw my throw a blanket over a bunch of the Cardinals interchangeable parts here because I can't figure out what's going on there between Tommy Pham and Jose Martinez and Matt Carpenter and Jed Jerko's off the DL now. Uh, there's a whole bunch of guys who you know all have both warts and skills in their profiles and I don't know where Mike Matheny is going to land and I'm not sure there's going to be a lot of logic to where Matheny lands when he does. So I, I think I'm kind of worried about all of them because I think they all sort of have some degree of playing time downside. Over to the mound again in the American League. Who's a pitcher you think uh, should be a bane? Uh, I'm going to go with my favorite April stat that I've seen so far, which is uh, Ronaldo Lopez with the White Sox. Uh, going into his start in Oakland uh, the other day, he had a 10% hit rate and a 100% strand rate, which is really just everything you need to know about April baseball. Um, and everything you look at there would say that, you know, he was due for a hard correction because those numbers can't continue. And he did pretty well in that start in Oakland, but that still means the clock is just still ticking. Uh, th- those numbers can't sustain, and, you know, his ERA is microscopic right now. And, you know, I like Ronaldo Lopez well enough, but this is not a uh, ace-level breakout we're seeing. A lot of people were pretty high on Ronaldo Lopez coming into the year, but yeah, nobody was expecting uh, Bob Gibson, that's for sure. In the National League, who's a Bane pitcher for you? Uh, Jake Arrieta for me. I thought he was a really good signing by the Phillies. I think what he did makes a lot of sense there, uh, you know, bringing him in there and what, what they need on that rotation in that team. I like it from a baseball standpoint, but from a fantasy standpoint, you know, I, we were probably pretty low on the spectrum of Arietta projections this winter, even before he signed in Philadelphia. And now he's coming off the abbreviated spring and it's not a great place to pitch and all of that. Uh, I, he's not a guy I want to be building my rotation around. And if I've got him even as a, you know, number two starter on my team, I might, be, I might be looking to trade him right now for somebody else who can fill that role. For Luis Castillo, perhaps. Exactly. Perfect example. Ray Murphy's Baines, uh, Matt Olson, uh, Tommy Pham, and a bunch of other St. Louis hitters, Ronaldo Lopez, and Jake Arrieta. Ray, this has been a, a lot of fun as usual. Tell our listeners where uh, they can keep up with Ray Murphy. Uh, you can find me at Baseball HQ in the GM's office column, uh, where, which I share with Brent Hershey. Brent will be up this week, but I should be there next week. And you can always catch my work on Twitter at RayHQ is my handle there. Ray, thanks so much for helping us out. It's been fun as always, uh, very entertaining, very informative, and we'll catch up with you again during the week, I hope. Absolutely. Great stuff, Patrick. Thanks for having me on. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and a longtime writer at the site. When we come back, our weekly talk with Todd Zola and Master Notes, all coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. That ball hit deep into left center field. Wise back, back. Makes the catch! What a play! Wise makes the catch! What a play by Wise! Mercy! 
What a play by Wise. Under the circumstances, one of the greatest catches I have ever seen in 50 years in this game. Alexei! Yes! 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 History! Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for a regular talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Yeah, what a what a convenient name. Uh, always good to talk with you, PD. Yeah, I thought uh, thought the same thing when I said it. I, yeah, what a good thing the show is called Talk with Todd, or you couldn't be on it. Yeah, it'd be a uh, if it was Talk with Jim or something like that. You'd have to change your name, or I'd have to go find some uh, expert named Jim. Yeah, or you get rid of me. You have to find someone out there named Todd, and I don't know how many analysts are named Todd. So uh, it's a good thing. It's convenient. We'll uh, well let's stick with this for a while. Uh, absolutely, yeah, we're <laughs> locked in. So your your most recent column at uh, Rotowire in the Z Files is about a, a concept called buying high. And uh, the, when I read the title, of course, I laughed. And then I read your first paragraph, and I laughed again because it it did bring back memories of uh, ordering three o'clock in the morning pizzas under certain conditions <laughs> and and uh, satisfying the munchies. So uh, I, I got a laugh out of that right away. But uh, when you talk about buying high, I guess it's kind of the antithesis of the old buy high or buy low sell high thing that everybody talks about. That is actually kind of obvious and hacky. I need someone to try to to to, to sell high in order to pull it off. Um, so, you know, on what it is, it is kind of hacky. You know, it's so easy to talk about. And listen, I've I've written pieces on in the past before I played for a while and, and realized that I don't want to disparage the leagues that that it, you know there's going to be a league where someone traded uh, Didi Gregorius and got back you know Carlos Correa. There's, it's out there. It happens. And I don't want to disparage these leagues because they, they help pay my salary. But the point is I don't I don't play in these leagues and I'll offer you know, I'll, I'll offer advice for anything. I get paid for it. But, you know, given my druthers, um, I'd like to come up with something a little different. So if what I like to do is try to find people that are looking to sell high, but I like those players more than they do. So there's sort of there's a difference in opinion that we could use to work out a trade. Uh, you know, we both feel that the said player will fall back. I don't want to use the word regress because that may not be regression. It just they, they're not going to play as well. And if I still think the landing point is higher than you do, we could potentially find a, a match so that, you know, I, I, I think I'm getting more back in the trade and you think you're getting more back in the trade because of our difference in opinion where the hot player is going to end up. I always thought the difficulty, and I understand the concept, but I always thought the difficulty was if the player coming to you has a, the, the owner has a high opinion of him, it's going to be more difficult for you to get, uh, get him to accept the kind of thing that you might be willing to part with, or is that not the case? Oh, no, that's absolutely the case. And I mean, you know, what I, the other trick of writing these articles is you, you can't pick out players that the owner's just not going to get rid of. You have to. There has to be a reason or, or an angle why you think you could, you know, loosen up the reins on that player. So I, uh, I, I think that's part of it. Sometimes they, you know, you just 
you, get, you pick a player, just you know, he happens to be available or the price was right. So not everybody is married to these players. So that was that was part of it too, was when I presented, you know, we can talk about the players, but when I presented the the some examples, I, there was all, I, th- I thought there was always an avenue where it was practical, not just, you know, made a name on paper. Because that, that's what drives me crazy with some of these pieces. You know, you, you, you're talking about, you know, buying low, um, I would, they're trying to think, you know, what player isn't hitting well right now? Um, John Carlos Stanton. Yeah, buy low on Stanton. Uh, you know, really, his owner's going to trade him, and if it, if he, you know, I don't want to be in that league or, or whatever. So that's the that's that's the idea. I'm trying to pick players, and the one that's sort of the player that I've had the most diff- in my head, kind of. If you if you purchase Garrett Cole, if you drafted Garrett Cole, there's probably a reason. So he he's of the of the players I listed, he's going to be the most difficult to wrest away from his current owner. But um, that's you know the other players I I, I think we're a little bit easier. But I, I said that in the piece that you know this Cole Cole's going to be tough, but there could be a pathway to do it. And as you said before, the pathway is that the expectation of his current owner might be that he's going to fall farther than you think he's going to fall. You mentioned that, of course, he's not going to maintain a 47% strikeout rate, much as though he might wish it. I'm a Cole owner, and I know that that's not going to continue. I know that he's not going to leave every single batter that reaches base on base. But at the same time, I don't think that he's going to go all the way down, as you say, to a to an ERA where he's in the fours rather than in the threes, where his whip jumps up to 130 instead of 115, these kind of things. And if that and that's where the arbitrage opportunity is, isn't it? If, if I think, okay, it's not going to stay at uh, whatever his current ERA is, 180 or whatever, but you think he's going up to four and I think he's going up to three, then maybe, uh, maybe I think there's an opportunity because he'll be willing to take less of a, a less less of a player right. in return because his expectations aren't as great as my expectations and therein lies the the leverage opportunity right now again Cole's kind of tough because Cole's owner probably went into the season excited that he was moving to Houston for the offense for the for the park because Minute Maid is actually a pitcher's park and there was also uh, our colleague you've talked to before you know Saris amongst others was pointing out that Houston is really good at identifying pitchers' strength and weakness, and it really looked like if Cole used his curveball more, that he'd be that much more effective. And sure enough, you know, you know, when others are prescient, Houston is doing that. He's getting results. Uh, Wednesday night's game, he, he he won. He hung in there. It's one of those the narratives. He didn't have his best stuff, but he hung in there and they got the win. Well, it's more than narrative. It's actually kind of true. He, um, he struck out five and seven innings, which isn't great. It's not terrible, but it was low. You know, the K percent's coming down like you suggested it would. But the point being, a lot of coal owners knew that, and you're not getting coal from those owners. But if you if you're getting an owner that just drafted coal uh, for whatever reason and, and is now looking at this number, oh wow, he had a ERA over four last year. I better cut bait. There's there's your opportunity. So Cole's a tough one. Some of the other players, I think the uh, the avenue, the window is 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 uh, easier easier to break open. I don't want to break any glass, but the uh, the door is easier to walk through. Yeah, I think so. And you have to identify those guys for whom Garrett Cole was not a target at draft. He's just the guy you got at draft because all the guys you really wanted were already gone. And I think that happens a lot. And those are the those are where those opportunities lie. If if as you said, you get a guy who who went into the draft thinking 
I've got to get Garrett Cole coming out of this draft. He's going to stick with Garrett Cole. We all know that. But uh, right. most drafts, it's, uh, except for a handful of players, that's not going to be the case, especially once you get past sort of the top two or three um, rounds or the top two or three tiers mm-hmm. of players, uh, the top two or three players in, in any particular position. After that, it starts to be a lot more fungible in most drafts where you say, okay, I need a starting pitcher. Here's my choices. Tanaka's available. Cole's available. Oh, there went Tanaka to, to Jim uh, across the table. Now Cole looks like the best guy. Yeah, all right, I'll take Cole. And if that's the case, then he's not married to him in the same way. Right. Now, the, 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 the sort of the impetus of the piece was a discussion uh, that our colleagues Jeff Erickson and Chris Liss had about Patrick Corbin. And they sort of posed a hypothetical, who do you want right now, Patrick Corbin or Dallas Keuchel? And and Jeff on on his radio show said this is a, a perfect example of Zola's buy-high principle. So, you know, Corbin, no one, I mean, yeah, you got the humidor and, and whatever, but no one is married to Patrick Corbin, right? You, you, you picked him maybe because of the humidor and hope for the best, but it wasn't like it didn't. It didn't have the you know the the, the signals that Garrett Cole, that Garrett Cole did. So now you know as good as Patrick Corbin is doing, you can possibly coerce that that owner into making a deal. Maybe they don't know about the the effectiveness of the slider. Not only that, Corbin's actually throwing two different sliders, a couple different velocities. And maybe maybe what he's saying is, all right, I've had arm problems. Sliders give me arm problems. But I'm sick of being a mediocre pitcher. I'll take my chances. If I get hurt again, well, at least I'm getting hurt. You know, go. I'm going down swinging, as it were. Uh, so, you know, perhaps, you know, I think I think there is a buying opportunity on Patrick Corbin. There are people that still believe the earth is earth is flat and the humidor is not going to affect the uh, the outcomes of, of pitchers in in, in 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 Arizona this year. So, I think there is a an opportunity to get Patrick Corbin from his current from his current owner. And yeah, young Keuchel is a, that's an interesting, that's a tough one. Cause I think, I think I looked up a 66 versus 144, something like that. ADP, maybe I think it was 214 It was 66 versus 214. It was like the fifth round versus the 16th round. But I think you can make a valid argument that if, you know, right now, if we were drafting again, Corbin might go higher than Keuchel. Indeed he might. And that, kind of should be in the back of your mind and that raises another question which we'll say for another time but a guy like Keuchel who's not pitching well and uh, is you'd be getting rid of him at a low ebb sometimes that's the way to play too it's not always buy low sell high sometimes you got to sell low and maybe somebody looks at uh, Dallas Keuchel and says hey he's he's not pitching well he's not pitching well he's bound to go up and I've got Patrick Corbin who is pitching well and he's bound to go down I'll make that deal and the argument is yeah maybe it's not such a good deal if uh, if Corbin survives the rest of the season, then uh, then he has a decent chance, if not an excellent chance, of uh, of doing as well as Keuchel does, or not. We we don't know. That's why we play the game. Uh, another guy you mentioned in the column was Matt Chapman, the Oakland Athletics third baseman, and I thought that was a pretty bold prediction uh, that you had before the season started that Chapman would be better than Matt Olson. Is this a declaration of victory by you? Not quite. <laughs> no, I'm not. I've been. Uh... Remember, uh, you know, our, our 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 colleague, Mr. Shanley there, the, the year he came out and declared victory in Mike Trout famously after three weeks. And uh, people, as it turned out, Mike Trout did what Ron said. He did he did regress, but he's still so darn good that, uh, of course, people are going to hammer Ron any, on any little thing. I thought that was kind of a kind of a weird thing there. But anyway, the point being, no, I'm not declaring victory. 
I am encouraged because part of what the analysis was, and uh, I um, what I mentioned is, is is you know you know numbers guy. Once in a while, I do like to go with a gut a gut feel or narrative, and I've always felt that good fielders will eventually translate some of those skills, reflexes, hand-eye coordination, just timing and sense uh, to the batter's box, especially contact-wise. And we all, Chapman has power. We know that. He had 30 bombs last year. But he made pretty poor contact. So it was just one of those things where, you know, you know, for every Omar Vizquel, you can come at me with, I don't know, Mark Belanger to go way, way, way back, and it never didn't really happen. But, uh, you know, the, it just seems to me that there's, there's instances of, um, of this sort of thing happening. So I was kind of, I was willing to take that chance that Chapman would translate some of these, uh, you know, other skills to the, to the plate. And they seem to have, they have so far, he's walking a lot more and he's whiffing less. And if you look at the underlying metrics he's swinging less both in and out of the zone he's being much more patient he's seeing more pitches and you know the narrative there is he's, he's waiting on the one he wants and he's, he's hitting it hard and the numbers reflect that the question is it's three weeks into the season and for some teams it's only a week and a half because they've missed half their games so it's still early in the season will this will this persist will this will this stay and i'm i'm willing to take the chance that it will in, in part because I thought it was there to begin with. So if Chapman's owner is seeing he's leading the league in RBIs, or maybe not anymore, I think his teammate Lowry may have taken over that 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 that, that uh, stool. But um, anyway, he's doing really well. If someone might take a uh, a third baseman back, uh, you know, I don't know a uh, what the you know um, trying to think of a middling, you know, a third baseman bound to get better. And uh, or even a corner infielder, I'm willing to take Matt Chapman, hoping that he continues at least on this trend. It may not; he may strike out a little more by season's end, but it won't be as high as people think it'll be. Another buy high guy. It was uh, kind of mentioned in a lot of tout uh, publications preseason was Tim Anderson of the White Sox, uh, whose obvious glaring flaw is that he just strikes out too much and doesn't walk at all. And yet here he is off to a, ter- a terrific start, especially on the stolen base front. And uh, this, again, might be a situation where his owner looks at him and goes, this can't go on, <laughs> especially if he bought him as a last-ditch shortstop ex- uh, effort because he missed all the other shortstops. Maybe this is the time to try to pry Tim Anderson away, on again, on the hope that the owner thinks there's a bad regression coming and you believe that maybe it isn't so. Yeah, actually, his batting average is already I mean, is down a bit, so... It's, it's, this might not be the perfect buy high because Anderson isn't crushing it, at least in terms of, of, you know, batting average, where a lot of people, like, that's what normally people, well, the batting average will come down. I you know the batting average will go up, it should. But um, what Anderson's doing, he's walking a lot more. And why this is important, is, well, it's always important, but it's extra important in his case because he's such an efficient base stealer. He got another bag last night. He's 8 for 8 on the year. And he's 33 out of 36, I think, on the sea on the, for his career, you know, his young career. Any time that a, a a player with that efficiency gets on base, you know, it, it's there's just that much more potential to steal. So there, that's my thing with Anderson is if if if, if uh, it, it's not so much of this, he may not be as much of a buy low, sell high, or whatever moniker you want to put. It may be if you happen to be blessed with some extra power and you need speed. He may be a guy that, you know, okay, I expected 15 to 20 steals. He could get 25 to 30. 
and you know we mentioned the the, the, the plate discipline there's there's a there's a concern there I mentioned before I'm afraid of strikeouts the White Sox don't seem to be, don't seem to care they don't have anybody knocking on the door it's Anderson's job that his leash is really long it look you know he's the guy and in today's era I've said this many times there's no shame in striking out I don't th- I don't think teams care as much so to me it, it, you know I think it's a it, it, it fits the buy high uh, mantra but it also could just be a challenge trade you know, I get extra power, I get I get extra saves, or I get extra, you know, I get a starting extra starting pitching. I need steals. Uh, I'd like I'm interested in your Tim Anderson. You know, maybe uh, he's already got eight, but uh, you know, he's never had more than what 18. He's not gonna. How many more do you think he's gonna get? That sort of thing. And uh, you never know. You may you may, end, you, may end, you may end up getting a steal. Yeah, and uh, one other sort of sneaky possibility for Tim Anderson to add value is so far this season in something like, what, 65 plate appearances or so, the highest he's batted is sixth and he's been as low as eighth. Uh, Just six, seven, eight, that's the only three batting order positions he's had. But if he continues to uh, rack up some walks, and batting seventh is on base percentage is nearly 400 because he's drawing a lot of walks in that position, there's a possibility that Chicago could look at him and say, you know what? If this guy can walk even to the point of getting an on-base percentage of 340, we're going to lead him off because he, he could steal 50 bases in that position and, and help us generate runs, which God knows they need the help. Yeah, and, you know, everybody, their, their offenses are very good, this, that, the other thing. You know, teams you know teams are going to score runs, and a lot of times an offense isn't very good because the, the lower end of the order isn't very good. I mean, it's a little, it's a little early to declare Moncada – as being, you know, he's he's ready, but you know he's at the top of the order. Um, Yolmer Sanchez is a guy that could easily move down in the order for Anderson to move up. Jose Abreu is one of the more underrated players in the league. Um, I think eventually Wellington Castillo will be moved up in the order. Right now, they're today's lineup. They have Nicky Delmonico hitting cleanup, which I think that uh, you know maybe that was actually that was that was yesterday's lineup. I'm sorry, but the point being, there's absolutely movement available. You know, if he, you know you can move Moncada down, um, so for sure. And the difference between the sixth and eighth, and between second and third, is 40 or 50 plate appearances, if not more. I'm counting maybe not play every game. But 40 or 50 plate appearances, as you know, is huge. Oh, it certainly is for counting stats, especially, as I said, if you're talking about a guy, and as you said, you're talking about a guy who has tremendous ability to steal bases, then anything that gets him more plate appearances, which in turn translates to more times aboard, which translates to more opportunities, which means uh, even if he, if you think he's going to be a 25-steal guy batting 7th or 8th, if you move him up uh, to the top of the order... You, then you, as you said, twenty-five, thirty are well within reach, and it could even go higher. I'm not sure that Moncat is the guy that they would move down. He's doing all right up there. He's on base percentage, I think, is around three thirty or so, and uh, I, I can't see them moving him. But I could see the two of them batting one, two easily enough. Sure, absolutely. Todd, always a pleasure to talk uh, with you, and we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thanks a million. All right, thank you, Petey. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about, on the other hand. Like many of you, I listen to and read a lot of fantasy baseball commentary. In my case, it's either that or read essays on artificial intelligence and high-definition TV written by my students. 
Lately, I've been noticing a goodly amount of advice being handed down in the fantasy baseball space to the effect that if an impatient John Carlos Stanton owner is offering to deal him, we should all be pouncing. And of course, if your league Stanton owner emails you, offering Stanton for Danny Valencia and a peanut butter sandwich to be named later, you should pounce. This seems to be fairly obvious advice. Like, if you see a $100 bill lying on the ground, you should pick it up, hold it discreetly near your hip, whisper, uh, anyone lose a C-note? And then go to the nearest bar. But on the other hand, Typically, any offer arriving over your electronic transom will be more like you get Stanton, but you give Corey Kluber, or you give Mookie Betts, or something like that. And that is by no means a sure thing. The Stanton advice is based on a premise, sometimes stated explicitly, sometimes implied, that the slow-starting Stanton with his three home runs in 75 plate appearances will get back to his 2017 MVP form. He will whack 50-plus home runs. He will score and drive in 120 runs. And he will hit 280. And, in fact, he might. He's done it before. Make the deal! But on the other hand, it sometimes helps to calibrate player expectations by looking at what the player has done over various spans of games. For instance, coming into 2018, Giancarlo Stanton had played in 986 big league games and in that time had amassed 969 18-game spans, 947 40-game spans, 912 75-game spans, and 827 160-game spans. Since that 160-game span corresponds pretty neatly with a full MLB season, we can look at the range of outcomes Stanton has had in any particular stat, allowing us to ignore the arbitrary prejudice of what we call a season. After all, a season's just a span of 160 games, right? So any 160-game span represents a possible season-length outcome. And looking at all of these season spans shows that Stanton's general level of home run production over any 160 games is not in the high 50s. It's around 42. If you're keeping score at home, the median was 42 home runs and the average was 43. So even if you can get Stanton in a trade, it seems overly optimistic to expect 50-plus home runs, and that's not counting the possibility of injury costing him plate appearances during this particular season-length span don't make the deal. But on the other hand, we have to accept that Stanton could hit 50-plus home runs again this season. 50-plus is easily within his range of outcomes. In fact, Stanton had 93 separate 160-game spans in his career with 50-plus home runs. So make the deal. But on the other hand, by far Stanton's most common 160-game home run total is 37 which accounts for 103 of his outcomes, or 12%, which is the same as all his 50-plus home run season spans combined. Don't make the deal. But on the other hand, there's been too much focus on Stanton's three home runs in 75 plate appearances to start this season. But the thing is, there's even more variability in a 75 plate appearance span than there is in a 160-game span. For Giancarlo Stanton, 75 plate appearances has been almost exactly 18 games worth. Coming into 2018, Stanton had played in 969 spans of 18 games, averaging exactly 75 plate appearances per each span. Most representative, two-thirds of Stanton's 18-game spans had three, four, five, or six homers. 
His most common home run total was five, the median average and the mode of all his 18-game spans. And when we know that Stanton's norm for 18 games is five home runs, his current count of three home runs doesn't seem quite so dire. Make the deal. But on the other hand, in those 18-game spans, he had just three home runs, or fewer, 261 times. That's fully 27% of all the spans. And he had only 41 18-game spans with seven or more home runs. That's 21%. Don't make the deal. Now, I could go on, and by now you're probably worrying that I might. So let's just wrap up with the real obvious point in all of this. It's way too soon to project how many home runs Giancarlo Stanton will hit this season. Now, based on past performance and assuming he stays healthy enough to play 160 games, we should expect a home run total somewhere between 34, which would be something of a disaster for his owners, and 59, which would be cause for celebration. But that's a mighty wide range. The most realistic expectation is, as I said, something in the low 40s. If that works for you, make the deal. There's decent upside. On the other hand, if it's not good enough for you to make a deal, hey, enjoy your sandwich. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get a version of Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Thursday in the weekly free e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we always have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio for you every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Thursday, April the 19th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 13 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Thursday full edition. It was Ray Murphy the co-general manager and analyst from BaseballHQ.com. Ray's a terrific guest. He's a very big supporter of the podcast, and he's a hell of a guy. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute was presented by Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, and our weekend pitcher matchups we're presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well, and as always, to Todd Zola, our regular guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You're also welcome to follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast, wherever you get your pods, and add to our star rating. It really does help us attract listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Thursday with another full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.